When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, Unshaken Saints. I'm Jared Halverson, and I hope you're back with me for more after such an eternal week last week. Tackling eternal marriage and plural marriage in the same lesson, uh, there was a lot packed into section 132. And so I realized that five and a half hours was a long time to spend. Believe me, yeah, it was a long time to spend in front of the camera. So I'm sure it's equally long for you to spend in front of your your TV or your phone or, or your computer. But I hope that it was helpful. That That's a tricky section. And for those, I, I had some comments saying, you know, plural marriage has never bothered me. I trust in God and and believe in his prophets. And so that hasn't been a trial of my faith. Thankfully, I didn't have to live it, but it, it hasn't bothered me. Should it have? And to that, the answer is no. Uh, the gift of faith truly is a, a, a great blessing that you can, you can be appreciative of, grateful for. And for those who have struggled or wrestled with it or just still can't wrap your heart or mind around it, that, that doesn't say anything negative about you either. That, that this is, oh, you have a gift of empathy for those sisters and brothers who, who had to live a gut-wrenching commandment. God will wrench your very heartstrings, Joseph said. And he did just that for those saints then. He's doing it in different ways for you and me now. And if that heart-wrenching hasn't come yet, buckle up. It probably will. Uh, I had to show my wife a portion of my patriarchal blessing before we got married just so that it could be full disclosure. Because my blessing had told me that I would someday live through trial and tribulation. And growing up, I hadn't experienced much. Uh, my life was, was pretty easy. Uh, and, and I just wanted to make sure my wife knew that she, what she was stepping into. You're marrying a ticking time bomb. I, I don't know what's coming, but something's on its way. Uh, and as we've been through more and more of those kinds of things, I am grateful for the Comforter living up to his title, which is what happened for those saints who, who struggled through, through those years of plural marriage. Uh, that God can soften difficult commands and, and infuse them with grace so that we can live them and even so that we can find the value of living those things, uh, as so many of the saints did in that time period. Uh, if you remember, if you started last week, I said at the very beginning of the first, I split it up into two videos because they were so long. And the first one I said at the very end, there's something really important. And that was the end of the whole thing, not just the end of episode one, but the end of episode two. So if you didn't make it that far, and I can't blame you, you may want to go back and watch the last 10 or 15 minutes of part two that just covers section 132. Uh, I had an experience reading the book of Leviticus in one day that prepared me to understand something about the command for plural marriage that I wouldn't have received in any other way. So I, I credit God and the Spirit for that one. Uh, so if you haven't seen it, go back and, and check that out. Now today, we finish the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, now don't, don't get ahead of yourself. We're not done with these, these lessons yet. Uh, but section 133, which is where we're going to start, is supposed to be the last revelation of the Doctrine and Covenants. If you remember, it feels like ages ago, back in January when we started studying the Doctrine and Covenants, section 1 was given out of order. Well, so is section 133. 
By the time, in fact, both of those revelations were received at the same conference in Hiram, Ohio in November of 1831. By then they'd had about 60-something revelations received, and if you recall our discussion in section one, the saints are, they want these things. People are, are trying to copy down longhand whatever word of God is coming through the mouth of the prophet. And so having all of these revelations, can, can we compile them? Can we publish them? Can we canonize them? And so the elders meet in this conference and pray and ask Heavenly Father his uh, feelings on the subject. And the Lord not only gives them a, a green light, go ahead and publish, but he says, I'll do you one better. I'll give you a preface for it to introduce all that comes ahead. And that's section one. Well, same conference, the Lord also gives them an appendix to kind of encapsulate you know, the final exclamation point at the end of all that went before. And that's section 133. I mean, it was section you know, 67 or 8 and then 9, and it keeps on getting bumped back until it gets to the end of the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, some would wonder then, well, why do we have section 134 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8? And in a way, those five sections are almost postscripts to the Doctrine and Covenants because they're not from Joseph Smith. I mean, yes, section 137 is. It was a vision he had of the celestial kingdom. And so technically that could afford to be put earlier in the Doctrine and Covenants chronologically. But the others, 134, which we'll study today, was written by Oliver Cowdery about government issues, church and state. 135 was written by John Taylor as he describes the martyrdom. 136 was written by Brigham Young in winter quarters as the saints are heading west and the, as the pioneers. And then 138 was the, the vision of the redemption of the dead from President Joseph F. Smith, uh, several generations after Joseph. And so in a way, we are, we're summing up the Doctrine and Covenants today. And in fact, if you want an interesting experience of scripture study, then open up on one screen or in one book, section one, and open up elsewhere, section 133, and recall that they're given at the same time, uh, but meant to be the bookends of the Doctrine and Covenants. And to begin and end our study of this dispensation with these two revelations, it's amazing how similar they are. And though it's been, what, 11 months since we studied section one, it was, I think, two days later, that section one and then 133. So there's a lot of, of echoes and parallels between the two. And in some ways, 133 is the perfect exclamation point at the end. If you remember the very beginning, uh, introductions or prefaces are a good place to establish purpose for a book. And the thesis statement of the Doctrine and Covenants is back in section one. Verse 12 read, prepare ye, prepare ye for that which is to come, for the Lord is nigh. We'll see similar uh, language here in 133, but that's the purpose of the Doctrine and Covenants, to prepare the world for the second coming. These are the latter days. We are the latter day saints. And it's up to us to help gather in one all things in Christ. That's the purpose of the dispensation of the fullness of times, according to Paul in the book of Ephesians. And so here we are gathering truth wherever it might be. And the Doctrine and Covenants gathering these revelations in order to prepare the world for the second coming. He says it from the very preface. In the appendix, he'll then say, how do we do? Are we prepared? Are we preparing? And are we preparing others? Because as time goes on, and, and again, technically, as section 133 keeps getting bumped back and back by more revelations, we could technically probably squeeze in general conference addresses and everything else that the Lord is revealing in our day and keep 133 at the end. It's almost like 133 is the book of Revelation of our book of Revelations. I always laugh when people uh, mis misquote or misname the book of Revelation from the, from the end of the New Testament. And they're like, oh, in Revelations, and I always laugh, I'm like, no, 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 it's called Revelation, singular. 
If there is a book of Revelations, plural, but that's the Doctrine and Covenants. Well, the end of the book of Revelations, section 133, is the equivalent of the book of Revelation at the end of the New Testament. Yeah, the book of Revelation wasn't written, uh, it wasn't the final, the last written book of the New Testament, but it speaks of the last days, the end of the world. It's apocalyptic literature. And so what better place than at the end of the Bible, since it deals with end of time kinds of stuff. Same with section 133. Not the last written, but a great way to end this, this book of Revelations. In some ways, you could even say the same thing about the Old Testament. Uh, it's hard to date some of the Old Testament books, but many believe that Malachi was not the last written. Ezra and Nehemiah might have been, might have been after that. But it's a great uh, capstone or end of the Old Testament because it speaks of final days kinds of things. The, return, the promised return of, of Elijah, for example, to turn hearts and so on. Uh, the Lord purging the sons of Levi so they can offer an offering in righteousness. We've seen, I mean, that was one of the, Malachi 3 and 4 were part of those, uh, the revelations that are scriptures that Moroni quoted to the young Joseph Smith. And so lots of these things pointing forward. If you've ever seen a movie that ends with kind of a, well, they set it up where you know they're making sure there's room for a sequel. Uh, thank you, Hollywood, for wanting uh, me to come back to the movie theater. But it's kind of like to be continued, da da da. Or even without saying it, you just, it leaves enough loose ends and open hints that it's like, okay, there's going to be another part. And Malachi does that for the Old Testament. Revelation does that for the New Testament. In a way, section 133 does that in terms of the to be continued is the coming of Christ. But in many ways also, it is looking back on all that went before it. And putting that final exclamation point, are we ready? It's go time. And so as we dive in and go time in section 133, I hope we sense where we happen to be chronologically, not just in the Doctrine and Covenants, but in this final dispensation as we prepare the earth for the coming of Christ. Oh, as Alma said, would to God that it might be in my day, but be it sooner or later, in it I shall rejoice. So let's rejoice. 133 verse 1, hearken. Remember what was the first word of the Doctrine and Covenants? The first word of section 1, hearken. I'm a God who speaks. Are you a people who listen? Hearken, O ye people of my church, saith the Lord your God, and hear the word of your Lord concerning you. So many of the revelations we've studied begin with some kind of call to attention. Now prick up your ears, uh, focus your sight, learn from the Lord the things he would have us know. Verse 2, the Lord who shall suddenly come to his temple, the Lord who shall come down upon the world with a curse to judgment, yea, upon all the nations that forget God, and upon all the ungodly among you. No wonder the Doctrine and Covenants is meant to help people remember God, as opposed to the nations that forget him. To convince the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, that's another scriptural phrase. So that the judgment, this curse to judgment, interesting phrase, won't come down upon you. You're no longer ungodly. We have become godly through these truths from God himself. But I do love that first phrase, the Lord will suddenly come to his temple. Now, by the time we're studying this in 133, we're already thinking of the Kirtland Temple and the Nauvoo Temple. But don't forget the chronology. This revelation was received in 1831, long before temple is even on the mind of Joseph Smith. We're still five years away from Kirtland. Okay? Uh, and so... This thought of temple, God is dropping hints already. And the thought of the Lord suddenly coming to that temple. We've talked about this before, that every time we talk about the stakes of Zion holding up the tent. But in many ways, the ultimate stake 
is a temple. And every time one is dedicated, it establishes this epicenter of holiness that then radiates out to cover the earth. And so if truth and righteousness are extending from the temple, so is judgment. Back in section 112, it speaks of divine judgment and says, Upon my house shall it begin, and from my house shall it go forth. If, if judgment is being able to discern righteousness from wickedness, what better way to, to tell than seeing perfect righteousness, namely the, the temple, that embodiment, the architectural embodiment of perfection, of holiness, of, of the glory of God. And so that judgment, I mean, to enter the temple, we are judged by judges of Israel, including ourselves, right? Those three signatures on your temple recommend. Am I ungodly or am I worthy of God's presence? Have I forgotten him? Or do I remember him in my daily behaviors? Are we measuring up to the temple? In this case, the Lord will suddenly come there, and then judgment encompasses the earth. Verse 3, For he shall make bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of their God. Back in section 1, he spoke of his arm as well. The arm of the Lord shall be revealed. And it spoke in a previous verse in section 1 that the, the sword of God is bathed in heaven. Again, you get this sense of judgment, impending judgment. Well, there's second coming, end of the world, judgment. And so if the sword is bathed, if the arm is bared, and all the nations of the earth shall see it, they'll see the salvation of their God, we see in verse 3, if they will choose to hearken to God's word. Remember the sword represents, in the armor of God, it represents the spirit and the word. So as God's sword is bathed in heaven, he's beginning to speak again. It cuts to the chase, right? And so will we hearken to it? Will we listen to the words of God through him or through his prophets? Or will we be cut off from his people because we choose not to hearken and obey? So with that as backdrop, what do we do? Verse 4, Wherefore, prepare ye, prepare ye, O my people, sanctify yourselves, gather ye together, O ye people of my church upon the land of Zion, all you that have been commanded to tarry. Remember, prepare ye, prepare ye for that which is to come. There's the thesis statement in section one. Well, now is the repetition, prepare ye, prepare ye, sanctify yourselves, we must become a holy people. But it's amazing that he is already talking of the gathering. We typically don't think of gathering until later. But this is 1831, that this is being received. I mean, again, it's amazing that we're reading this now after so much of the history of the church has unfolded. And in some ways, this is such a prophetic revelation because so many of the things he's mentioning here in November of 1831 are, have happened in the meantime since we started studying, okay? The gathering in Ohio and then in Missouri and then in Illinois upon the land of Zion. So much history, good and bad, has unfolded on the land of Zion since this revelation was received. Those who are not commanded to tarry, that's an interesting phrase. We're going to see in the very next verse and repeated throughout uh, or beyond this, this, this need to escape, to flee. Uh, the destruction, the judgment, the sword that's coming down, right? But those who are commanded to tarry, why would anyone stay behind when the Lord is urging everyone forward? Think about first responders who usually have to be last leavers. That they're the ones rushing into a burning building when everyone else is rushing out. 
They're the ones standing at the door, making sure everybody gets out and then scanning the area to make sure that no one is left behind. They're the captain that's going down with the ship. And it's interesting, amazing to me to see in verse 4 that there are those called to tarry. You know, in the world and not of the world, that's a, that's a, a broad spectrum. And every, every step we take in the world is, is a, a dangerous potential towards becoming too much of it. But every step we take to me not, not be of the world, we're not as far into the world to make a, a difference. That's why it, it's, it's individual. You'll have to have the Holy Ghost helping you know just how far in the world you must be. But those who are called upon to tarry in some ways. I'm not saying lower your, your standards of righteousness. Okay? We must remember. We must not be ungodly. All that we saw in those previous verses. But to be in the world in order to make a difference there. To, to tarry in a way so that we can make sure everyone gets out. That's, that's, our, that's part of the responsibility God has given to each of us. Because where are we fleeing? We're fleeing to Zion in four, but if we're going to, then we must also be going from. And the from is in verse five. Go ye out from Babylon. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. Now for this one, we need to understand a little bit of our history. If you remember after Saul, David, Solomon, the three kings of United Israel, Solomon's son Rehoboam was kind of a punk, uh, and so there is a secession from the union. And the northern tribes, ten, split off to form the kingdom of Israel, and the southern two tribes remain uh, to form the kingdom of Judah. Well, the northern kingdom is scattered by the Assyrians. That's where we get the lost ten tribes, the scattering of Israel that we're out trying to help gather, right? Uh, gather ye together. We're up against the Assyrians on that one. But then, uh, 140 years later, give or take, during the time of Jeremiah, during the time of Lehi, during the time of uh, Ezekiel or Daniel, uh, the Babylonians are now in charge. The Babylonians have defeated the Assyrians. They're now the world superpower, and they're trying to finish the job that the Assyrians couldn't quite do. Want, they want to now destroy the southern kingdom. And so they march over and successfully do so, and then drag Israel back to Babylon. Now, the Babylonian Empire doesn't last so long. They end up getting gobbled up by the Persian Empire. And King Cyrus of Persia's decision was, let's actually be nice to our conquered peoples, shall we? Maybe they'll be more loyal that way. So you Jews that are here captive in Babylon slash Persia now, go home. Uh, you can return. You can rebuild your city. You can rebuild your temple even. We'll even help. Cyrus was a great hero for the Jews. And so this concept then is in his time, now that you're freed, leave Babylon and go back and build your temple, hence the need to bear the vessels of the Lord. That's temple language in verse 5. And so those priests and Levites being able to gather up the temple implements, the vessels of the Lord, and return them to Jerusalem where they could rebuild their temple. The Lord shall suddenly come there. Lots of temple imagery as we approach the, the last days, the coming of the Lord. Now, Babylon uh, is an interesting one because it's, it becomes this, this symbol for the wicked world. And there have been several of those. We could talk about uh, Israel versus Edom. In fact, let, let me go back because in section one, there's two different, he uses two of them. There's lots of possibilities. You could talk about, about Edom. Uh, that's one enemy of Israel. You could talk about Egypt. That was a big one as they were captive uh, in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. You could talk about Babylon. That's the big one. You could talk about Assyria, uh, the Canaanites, the Philistines. I mean, any of Israel's enemies in the Old Testament, we'll meet them all next year, can become a, a symbol for the wicked world because that's the enemy of Zion today. 
Now, uh, the two that show up in section one of the Doctrine and Covenants, near the very end, he says in verse 36, And also the Lord shall have power over his saints, and shall reign in their midst, and shall come down in judgment upon Idumea, or the world. Now, Idumea is simply Edom. And that's kind of the split between Jacob and Esau. These are old uh, rivalries and divisions between Israel and, and others. And so Edom, Idumea, the Lord uh, clarifies the symbol. Idumea or the world, that's what we're up against. That's what we're trying to escape. Now that's w one example from section one. The other from section one speaks of Babylon, which becomes the main one. We talk more about Babylon, like Zion versus Babylon, than we do Israel versus Idumea or Israel versus Egypt. Babylon then becomes the ultimate symbol. And that's true in, in the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah speaks of Babylon. I mean, it's true throughout scripture. You'll see Babylon as the ultimate symbol of a wicked world. In section one, verse 16, they seek not the Lord to establish his righteousness. Like we saw here, they've forgotten him. It's the ungodly. Every man walketh in his own way, after the image of his own God, whose image is in the likeness of the world, and whose substance is that of an idol, which waxeth old and shall perish in Babylon, even Babylon the great, which shall fall. Sound like the great and spacious building in Lehi's dream? Which shall fall, and great shall be the fall thereof. Zion versus Babylon is the age-old darkness versus light, good versus evil. In fact, we've talked about this before as far as the bride of Christ is concerned. And we'll see that kind of imagery in section 133 also, the coming of the bridegroom. Well, if Christ is married to his church, remember Paul's language in Ephesians, husbands love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, then it stands to reason that there would be a parallel and Satan would marry his church namely the great and abominable church, also known as the whore of all the earth. There's no fidelity on her side. Go figure. If Christ and his church is a match made in heaven, then of course, Satan and his church is a, ma a match made in hell. Uh, no fidelity there, the whore of all the earth, but also known as the world, Babylon. The Lord marries Zion and Satan marries Babylon. I used to do this with my students in seminary. I'd say, uh, find a tag, whether it's on your shirt or your shoes or in your backpack or your scripture case or whatever. Find a tag somewhere and let me know where it was made. And they'd be looking at each other's collars or, or trying to find some tag somewhere and go, oh, mine was made in China or mine was made in Vietnam or mine was made in Mexico or mine was made in the United States or wherever it might be. And say, okay, interesting. Now, now look again, harder, closer. And tell me again where it was made. And they're like, what am I supposed to be looking at? I said, well, this time look through spiritual eyes. And there's only two possibilities as far as where it was constructed. It's either going to say made in Zion or it's going to, be, or it's going to say made in Babylon. Because at the end of the world, in fact, apocalyptic literature like Revelation, uh, in a way like section 133, uh, is, is deeply dualistic where there's no more middle ground. It's good versus evil. We saw that at the end of section one, where Satan will have power over his dominions and the Lord will have power over his saints. There's no more middle ground. There's no spiritual Switzerland, okay? Uh, you pick a side and you dive into the trenches. How long halt ye between two opinions? That the Lord be God, follow him. Uh, no man can serve two masters. God or mammon, Zion or Babylon, make up your mind. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? There's so many examples of that in scripture of you have two choices 
Two options, and I hope you choose the right one. Moses, I have set before thee life and death, wherefore choose life. Again, so many examples of that in Scripture. And so here we are trying to decide, am I receiving my, my clothing, uh, my food, my entertainment, my, my values, my education, my understanding, my perspective from Zion or from Babylon? Who am I listening to? I mean, go back to that verse in section one. It's the image of their own God. It's after the image of the world. And, and it's such a struggle. Here we are growing up in Babylon, trying to maintain our loyalties to Zion. I've said to students, go and listen to music. Go home and check out your CD collection or, or whatever you have, your playlists on Spotify. CD is so, so old-fashioned, right? Uh, and, and if you listen with a discerning ear, you'll know where it was recorded. If it was recorded in Zion or in Babylon. And I don't just mean you have to listen to the Tabernacle Choir all day, which is, which is a good option. But there is so much wonderful music. I, I loved my time in Nashville. Uh, and seeing young, young Latter-day Saints trying to get discovered because they had such talent and such gift and such light and truth they were trying to extend through the medium of music. Art and, and, and film and literature, it, it doesn't just, I didn't say made in Salt Lake City. There are so many other uh, brands that Zion is, has produced. And so to be, to be open to that and to, to be loyal to that, because there are so many Babylonian labels as well. And that we need to be careful for. I said to my students, as you watch movies, if you wait till the end and watch all the credits go, you ever done that when you see scenery on a movie that's just amazing? You're like, what? where was that filmed? And you want to see? Well, wait long enough and you'll be able to tell that it will say at the end, subtly, either filmed in Zion or Babylonian studios. Actually, now that I think of it, you don't have to wait for the credits. You'll usually know early on where, what source this is coming from. I actually had one, one student. This, this was amazing to me. We had talked about this in seminary years ago. I mean, this is a 20-year-old story. And, but we were talking about Zion and Babylon and being caught between the two and where are your loyalties and, and so on. And, you know, which mother is raising you, right? Uh, and nurturing you. That's a better verb. And... And what's into this, this student came in with a friend. It was so fascinating. It was lunchtime. And she comes in with these like shopping bags. And I'm like, what, what is that? And she said, oh, these are, these are my Babylonian clothing. I'm like, huh? She said, after our lesson, I was just so, I don't know, on fire. I just wanted to check my tags. And I just wanted to see, am I allowing the world to be too much with me? Am I too in the world to the point that I've become of it? So I went through my wardrobe and I saw some things that I, I would be ashamed to wear in Zion. That, that, that was definitely Babylonian cloth. And so I went through and I cut them up and put them in, in, and put them in these shopping bags. And, and here they are. And, and I guess I was the, the, the depository of, of collecting all of these Babylonian things. It's like, you'll know what to do with them. I'm like, okay. It was so funny to watch her friend because her friend was like, oh, I don't know. You could see she was torn between Zion and Babylon herself. So oh, I should probably do that. Oh, but I look so cute. And, you know, whatever. And it was funny, but she, she won the wrestle, the inner wrestle, because like a week later, she came back with more shopping bags than her friend did. And in all these individual Ziplocs were little pieces of like squares of clothing, the evidence of taking some shears to her wardrobe and deciding to be, to even, to, to dress more like mother number one, Zion.
rather than mother number two, Babylon. Over the years, as I've shared these kinds of examples, I have had students bring me uh, their CD collection. This was in the old days. Uh, smashed to smithereens. They said, oh, I had a blast out in the backyard with a hammer. As I went through my music collection and realized, oh, this was recorded in Babylon. And it just, it makes me, it makes it harder for me to remember God. It makes me feel a little more ungodly. And so it's going to start in my house and spread from there. And I want to be clean. And so will you take my, my CD shards and do with them whatever you do with with the other Babylonian paraphernalia that people are donating. Uh, I've had people take, again, this is old school. It's, it's harder to do in, in the electronic age. It's a matter of deleting things. But in those days where you had physical copies of stuff, I have received burned up uh, VHS cassettes of movies that, that a student felt was, was inappropriate. I've seen uh, games and, and cards and things that, that just, and I'm not the one passing judgment. It's fascinating to see just a teenager realize this is making it harder for me to live the gospel. This is making it harder for me to prepare, prepare, and sanctify myself. And so I'm going out of Babylon, or taking Babylon out of me. I want to be clean because I've been called to bear the vessels of the Lord. And so, Brother Halverson, deliver this to wherever you deliver it to. Uh, it's amazing to watch young people just I want to be better. And I want to be more like them. I want to be better too. So go out from Babylon. Once we can do that, verse 6, call your solemn assemblies. Remember the temple's still five years away, but they're already speaking of solemn assemblies. God is dropping hints. Speak often one to another. If our realities hang by the thin thread of conversation, as one of my favorite religious psychologists has said, then no wonder we need to speak often to each other to help us to help one another remember the things of God. It's so hard to remember Zion when you're being raised in Babylon. The 70 years that the Israelites spent there in Babylon, that's where you see an Ezekiel just trying to remind the people of the God that, whose land they've been removed from, but the God to whose land they would someday return. Remember the Lord. So call your solemn assemblies. Speak often one to another. Let every man call upon the name of the Lord. Verse 7, Verily I say unto you again, the time has come when the voice of the Lord is unto you. There's that hearkening again. And what are we supposed to hearken to? This is the second time he's repeated the command. Go ye out of Babylon. Gather ye out from among the nations, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So this is far beyond Babylon. This is now encompasses Assyria since they scattered Israel to the winds. Go gather them on both sides of the veil, those that have been scattered, scattered by death itself. Go out from Babylon and then help everyone else get out as well. That's why some of us must tarry uh, to make sure the last uh, survivor is able to, to flee. Verse 8, send forth the elders of my church unto the nations which are afar off, unto the islands of the sea. Send forth unto foreign lands. Call upon all nations, first upon the Gentiles and then upon the Jews. There's a missionary verse if I've ever seen one. Send forth the elders so they can bring in, gather out the house of Israel. Go to the nations, the islands, the foreign lands, Gentiles, Jews. Everyone deserves 
In fact, if you go back to section one and see where, where the Lord is, who the Lord is speaking to, verse one, hearken ye people from afar, ye that are upon the islands of the sea, listen together. You see, he started by addressing the church, but then immediately pivots. This voice is supposed to be to everyone. He says that in section one also. Verse four, the voice of warning shall be unto all people by the mouths of my disciples whom I have chosen in these last days. Or in verse 6, Behold, this is mine authority, and the authority of my servants, and my preface unto the book of my commandments. There's the preface, now we're in the appendix. But what's he say there? Which I have given them to publish unto you, O inhabitants of the earth. We talked about this way back in section 1. But the pronouns there are fascinating. I am declaring this to them, the elders that I'm sending forth, O hearken, O ye people of my church, to declare them unto you, O inhabitants of the earth, the isles of the sea, all nations, Jews and Gentiles. You see, in both section 1, preface, and 133, appendix, God is keeping two audiences in mind, his saints and everybody else. But the saints are almost just a means to the greater end. Yeah, I'm going to talk to them. They need this stuff, obviously. It's to prepare them. But really, the only reason I want them prepared, or the main one, is so that they can then go out and prepare everybody else. Right? In thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed, Abraham and Joseph, since you're just like Abraham for this new dispensation. I mean, so many of these threads are, are starting to tie together as the Lord is putting the bookends on the Doctrine and Covenants. So you saints have to hear this. But the, but the pronouns in section 1 verse 6 really say that his, his ultimate audience are the people of the earth. This book is to you. I'm just giving it to them to start the process. The Lord is there with the people of the earth, letting them know, I've, I've commissioned some messengers. I've given them a, a book. They are to bring it to you. I, it's amazing to watch those whose hearts are prepared, who have heard the shepherd's voice, and are waiting for you and me to do what God promised them we would do. Bring them the word. So send forth the elders. May we go everywhere. Now back to 133, verse 9. Behold and lo, this shall be their cry, and the voice of the Lord unto all people. So get ready, missionaries, members and full-time missionaries alike. This is our message. Go ye forth unto the land of Zion. No wonder we've got to pull them out of Babylon. We're headed in the right direction now. That the borders of my people may be enlarged, and that her stakes may be strengthened, and that Zion may go forth unto the regions round about. You remember back in section 82, there was this border war being described? And in verse 14, Zion must increase in beauty and in holiness, her borders must be enlarged, her stakes must be strengthened. But then earlier in verse 5, watch for the adversary spreadeth his dominions, and darkness reigneth. So the idea of the adversary spreading his dominions even as the Lord is trying to spread his and extend the borders of Zion. Like I said, border war between truth and, and, and error, between light and darkness. Between, who's, who's trying to get a bigger market share of the earth? Zion or Babylon? And so here in verse 9, we need to go forth to be able to extend the borders of Zion. Verse 10, yea, let the cry go forth among all people. Awake and arise. Go forth to meet the bridegroom. Behold, and lo, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Prepare yourselves for the great day of the Lord. Sound like the parable of the ten virgins? It should. 
because that is a second coming parable, and this is a second coming revelation. So I, I know it's, it seems that the Lord is, is delaying his coming. It seems like it's taking forever. Don't fall asleep. If you have, wake up. Awake, arise, go forth to meet him. I love that idea of not just, I mean, if somebody's coming, actually, I remember this as little kids where, you know, mom and dad or grandma and grandpa were coming to visit or something. And you just would stand at the edge of the street and like scan how far away is the car. You were so excited for them to come. You went out to meet them. This is the triumphal entry. Where, where the Jews are walking out towards Bethany and, and laying their clothing and, and their palm branches so that Christ can come in. To go out to meet him? I'm not frantically preparing last things at home. I'm not shoving stuff under the bed or into the closet I wouldn't want my divine visitor to see. I'm prepared, right? Prepare ye, prepare ye. We've seen that already. Now I can, I'm awake, I've arisen, I have oil in my lamp and extra in my vessel. I'm trying to get the rest of the virgins to be wise and not foolish. Can we be prepared for the great day of the Lord? Verse 11, watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour. There's second coming language, right? This is the uh, assignment with no due date so that we have to prepare early and continually revise the moment we realize that I still have some more time before I have to turn this in. No day, no, no hour, no knowledge of that. Remember the, the humor in the Lord when he speaks to Joseph in section 130? Well, if you live to be 85, Joseph, quit asking. I'm not going to tell you. You just need to be ready at every day and in every hour. Verse 12, let them therefore who are among the Gentiles flee unto Zion. And let them who be of Judah flee unto Jerusalem, unto the mountains of the Lord's house. Isaiah talks about this, that the, the law will come forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, there's some poetic parallelism there, but also these two church headquarters, old world and new, old Jerusalem and new Jerusalem, stick of Judah and stick of Ephraim. It's all coming together here. So those that are in the, among the Gentiles flee to Zion, new Jerusalem. Among the Jews, those of Judah flee to Jerusalem, the old Jerusalem. Wherever you happen to be, flee to the mountains, plural, of the Lord's house. Usually it talks about the mountain of the Lord. But it's amazing to see in our dispensation with help from President Kimball originally, and then uh, speeding up with President Hinckley, and now <laughs> rapid fire from President Nelson. Mountains, plural, of the Lord, dotting the earth, including the isles of the sea. All ye people, afar, you're all being invited to flee to Zion, flee to Jerusalem, specifically flee to the nearest mountain of the Lord's house. There will be mountains all over the place, places of refuge and safety. In the, it will begin in my temple, spread from there. The Lord will suddenly come to his temple. Will we suddenly come to it as well? I hope so. In verse 14, wherever you're going to Zion or Jerusalem, again, you're going from. Go ye out from among the nations, even from Babylon, from the midst of wickedness, which is spiritual Babylon. If you go back to the book of Revelation, and remember, that's on Joseph's mind. He had that big Q&A about it in section 77. But in the book of Revelation, there, talk about apocalyptic literature. It's the, it's the paragon of it in the Bible. And talk about dualistic one side versus the other. 
almost every image of righteousness in Revelation, there is a mirror image of wickedness. And there's the lamb versus the beast. There's the bride of Christ versus this scarlet harlot. There is the city of Zion versus the merchant city of Babylon. In fact, if you look at the, the images of Babylon in Revelation, there's the political Babylon, which is the beast. There is the spiritual Babylon, which is the harlot and the false prophet. There's the economic Babylon, which is the merchant city. All of those will fall as, they are, as their darkness is eclipsed by the light of the world and the coming of Christ. But to think about the Babylonian manifestations that are all around us, political, religious, economic, ideological, philosophical, you name it, we need to come out from those things. Now, verse 15, there's a caution. But verily thus saith the Lord, let not your flight be in haste, but let all things be prepared before you. And he that goeth, let him not look back, lest sudden destruction shall come upon him. Now, this is tricky. The Lord's going to come suddenly to his temple. Shouldn't we be ready to go in the, in the drop of a hat? Well, yes, but ready is the operative word there. Prepared. He said it repeatedly, prepare ye, prepare ye. And if things are all prepared before us, then it's not so much a matter of, I mean, the, the flight can be, you can leave, you can travel quickly. How's that? But in terms of getting ready to go, this cannot be a deathbed repentance. This can't be a last second, <gasps> what do we have everything? This can't be the sprint through the airport, hoping that we get to the, to the gate on time. There's, I mean, that's one of my least favorite feelings because the stress of that moment, I'm going to miss something. Well, imagine if it's the stress of the moment and I don't want to miss the coming of Christ. I need to be prepared far in advance so that my flight is not in haste as I'm checking everything. Like, did you bring your passport or do you have your ID or do, do we print off the tickets or whatever it might be, we need to be prepared in advance, wise virgins rather than foolish. And then that last phrase of don't look back, lest sudden destruction come. Again, what are we thinking? That brings Lot's wife to mind. A, a, a world, or in their case, a city, Sodom and Gomorrah cities, to be destroyed by fire. It was there, that, that early Armageddon, so to speak, in the Old Testament. And Lot and anyone faithful he could find. Remember, Abraham was pleading, if we find enough faithful, will you spare the rest? Well, there weren't enough. But God would spare those that, that wanted to be spared. And so gather out the righteous. Lot was trying to do that with his family. But Lot's wife looks back. Whether it was out of temptation, whether it was out of longing, maybe even whether it was, did I remember everything? Or was my flight too hasty and I came ill-prepared? In fact, even in the New Testament, we often speak of Jesus wept as the shortest verse in all scripture. Two words is all. Well, there's a second, a close second that only has three words. And it's Jesus himself speaking as he's talking about the second coming and the destruction of the wicked. And are you prepared? He simply says, remember Lot's wife. Talk about a clue for sudden destruction coming upon you. Talk about a, a reminder of not looking back longingly at a world you were never meant to fit into. Just leave it behind and don't look back. Now, verse 16 is one of my favorites because 
It actually goes back to what I just said. I ask students sometimes, what's the shortest verse in all of Scripture? And pretty much everybody knows Jesus wept. And I'll say, okay, what about the second? And then that's a good chance to remember, to remember Lot's wife. But based on verse 16, I, I love doing this with students. I said, no, there's actually a shorter verse than Jesus wept. And they're like, what? How can you be shorter than two words? There's a one-word verse? I'm like, yep, there's a one-word verse. And they're like, where? They're so excited. So, oh, it's in section 133. And they'll turn there, and I'll give them a, a minute or something to start scanning to look for the one-word verse, and they can't find it anywhere. They're like, it's, no, it's not a 133. I'm like, yeah, it is. It's verse 16. And so speedily, though, their eyes will fly to verse 16, and they go, what? That doesn't have one word. It, I, don't even, I can't even count them. That's a, a fairly long verse. I said, yes, you're, you're right. I tricked you. But boil it all down, and there's only one word. Because everything else in verse 16 is just to try to get your attention so you pay attention to the one word. It's like there's like five or six lines worth of God just clearing his throat. Like, <clears throat> okay, all eyes on me. Are you ready? Are your ears open? Uh, eyes fixed? Are you ready for my message? Because it's only going to be one word. And if you blink or if you, go, if you zone out for a second, you're going to miss it. See how the Lord does it. Hearken and hear, O ye inhabitants of the earth. Listen, ye elders of my church together. And hear the voice of the Lord, for he calleth upon all men, and he commandeth all men everywhere to... You see, all that was, was just getting your attention. What's the one word, verse, in 16? Repent. His final word there. Everything else. Remember back in section 43 when we talked about the divine alarm clock, complete with snooze bar? And that God is going to try everything he can, all the different voices, justice as well as mercy, thunder and lightning and tempest and plague and all the signs of the times are just to get our attention. Oh, ye sinners, stay and sleep until I call upon you again. There's the snooze bar. Uh, ye saints, arise. What is he trying to get us up to do? To meet the bridegroom. This is, this is your wedding day. Uh, to, to be ready for that. And so what's the one word of the alarm clock? Most of it, it, for us, it's mostly just this painful beeping sound. Some have a little softer with, with music that, that wakes them. Well, for us, what's the alarm clock's sound? Repent. How long does the snooze bar last? Oh, six months, perhaps. Every April to October. As prophets once again raise the, 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 the warning voice, repent. Hearken, repent. Hear, repent. Everyone, listen together, repent. Ye people of the church, repent. You on the isles of the sea, repent. God is calling all men to repent. He's commanding everyone, everywhere to repent. We sadly see repentance as such a negative word. It's not. Sin was the negative word, and that's what we fell into. Repentance is the solution, not the problem. Repentance is the rope the Lord lowers to us. Repentance is His extended hand. Take it and let me lift you. So I hope the way I present verse 16 to my students is just frustrating enough. When they're like, it has more than one word. Uh, well, when you really think about it. I hope it reminds them the shortest scripture in all. The one that reminds us of what we must do is simply God's invitation to repent. 
Verse 17, For behold, the Lord God hath sent forth the angel, crying through the midst of heaven, saying, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight, for the hour of his coming is nigh. Now we would probably uh, identify that angel as the angel Moroni. We typically do that with Revelation 14, 6 and 7. Another angel will fly through the midst of heaven. But the book of Revelation is full of angels. And as we saw back in section 128, the restoration is too. So the opening of the heavens and whatever messengers the Lord sends, all of them are crying to repent, to prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now we're starting to think John the Baptist. It's amazing when the Lord talks in Scripture and pulls in all kinds of other texts. Intertextuality is what it's called. And section 133 is such a great example of it that we're supposed to be, uh, I mean, synapses firing in all directions as we go back to, oh, that's Isaiah, oh, that's Revelation. Well, here, there's John the Baptist preparing the way of the Lord, making his paths straight. By the way, we can't exactly prepare the way for others if we're not prepared ourselves. So there is these kind of concentric rings, kind of like Enos, bless me, forgive me, bless my people, forgive them, bless mine enemies, forgive them. Uh, and in a similar way, prepare yourselves. Done? Good. Now prepare others. Done? Good. Now prepare the way for the Lord so that he can suddenly come to his temple. Verse 18, when the Lamb shall stand upon Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his Father's name written on their foreheads. That's the book of Revelation as well. And the name upon the forehead, remember the priests that would have in the Old Testament that would have this golden plate across their forehead that said, holiness to the Lord? Well, there's a temple phrase too. Do we have God on our mind? Are we remembering him as we should, as we covenant to whenever we partake of the sacrament? Or do we have the name of the beast marked on our forehead? Because that's the duality in Revelation. There's the other option. Does your countenance read made in Zion or is it fashioned in Babylon? We talked about the 144,000 earlier uh, when Joseph had those questions about the book of Revelation. Yeah, this has been on his mind for a while. Okay, The 12 times 12, house of Israel, squared, perfected, okay? raised to, to the nth power as far as a, a thousand, times it by a thousand. Mount Zion. Whether that's New Jerusalem or old, part of the second coming is coming to the New Jerusalem, Adam on Diamond. Part of the second coming is coming to the old Jerusalem, uh, setting foot on the Mount of Olives and it's splitting in half so that the Jews have a way to escape as the Lord vanquishes their enemies. In some ways, both of those are still preliminary comings because the ultimate second coming is when all the earth shall see him together. And that's what we're trying to prepare the world for. So, verse 19, Wherefore, prepare ye for the coming of the bridegroom. Go ye, go ye out to meet him. Out of Babylon, because the Lord's not going to go there. This is like the, the father of the prodigal son. He can't go to that far country. But vigilantly he'll be watching. As soon as someone makes a, a pivot point, comes to themselves and begins to return and repent. Oh, then the Lord can sprint out to meet him. Go out, go forth to meet the bridegroom. You see, we're the prodigal sons and daughters in that story. As we come out of Babylon, the Lord will come out to meet us. We've come in, we're coming out to meet him. All as part of our preparation. That word comes up so many times in this, in this revelation. Verse 20, For behold, he shall stand upon the Mount of Olivet, 
That's the, the Jerusalem version. We see Mount Zion in 18, the Mount Olivet, the Mount of Olives, we would call it, in 20. And upon the mighty ocean, even the great deep, and upon the islands of the sea, and upon the land of Zion. So there you get more of a sense of all these comings coming together uh, in verse 20. By the way, even the standing upon the great deep. In the Old Testament, water and ocean is a symbol for chaos. And so for the Lord to set foot and calm. Remember, if it's a sea of glass before the presence of God, that the Prince of Peace is returning, and no more winds and waves, just a calm, placid sea. Verse 21, he shall utter his voice out of Zion. He shall speak from Jerusalem, these two headquarters. His voice shall be heard among all people. There again is kind of a repeat of the, th the three comings, new world, old world, whole world. 22, it shall be a voice as the voice of many waters, as the voice of a great thunder, which shall break down the mountains, and the valleys shall not be found. Voice of many waters. We talked about the gentleness of a stream, uh, the constancy of a river, the rush of a mighty waterfall, the peace and power of the Holy Ghost. Oh, to hear the voice of the Lord as the voice of, of many waters. Thunder trying to get our attention, wake us up, break down the mountains, no more valleys to be found. Again, symbolically speaking, there's more highway construction. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill made low, the rough places plain, the crooked straight. There's Handel's Messiah. That's preparing the earth for the coming of Christ. Verse 23, he shall command the great deep. It shall be driven back into the north countries and the islands shall become one land. Now, as he is he hinting at what he did in gathering Israel out of Egypt and pushing back the great deep with the Red Sea? Uh, driving back into the north countries, is he hinting at uh, the scattering of the lost tribes? Since enemies, I mean, they're kind of caught right between Egypt and, and Mesopotamia, and those always seem to be the two big superpowers. It's like you're, you, <laughs> you, you set up camp right between uh, the, the two sides of a family feud. Not a very safe place to dwell, but welcome to the promised land. Uh, the Egypt would come from the south, but Assyria would come from the north, and Syria would come from the north, and Babylon would come from the north, and Persia would come from the north. And so, so often the northern countries became the symbol for the enemies of Israel, or the apostasy, or the places to which the tribes of Israel were scattered. And so this hint of north countries, there's an idea of that. Islands becoming one land, the thing about an island is it's cut off from its surroundings. Ocean, chaos, surrounds it to the point that they cannot connect with other people. So these islands of the sea, yes, think literally, but also think symbolically about people who feel cut off from others. And all of those islands becoming one land, the deep being pushed back, the north countries coming back. This is a great verse symbolizing the gathering of Israel that we are supposed to be a part of. Verse 24 builds upon it. The land of Jerusalem and the land of Zion, there's the two sides again, shall be turned back into their own place and the earth shall be like as it was in the days before it was divided. See back 23, the islands become one land. 24, the earth is back before it was divided. Now, are, are we going back to Pangea? I, I don't know how literal this is or, or, uh, or simply figurative, but from a symbolic perspective, to think about the geographic divisions of the world, which typically lead to ideological divisions, 
just differences of perspective and often a lot of contention and problem. If you think about the Tower of Babel, for example, Babel, Babel, Babylon, hmm. Well, if you think about that of dividing people, we can't communicate one another, to one another. We can't see eye to eye. And those that establish Zion will see eye to eye again. That, that, there's prophecies. So to see what's happening here, that divisions, linguistic, spiritual, ideological, whatever, are, are, being, are being reversed. The, the walls are coming down. The land is returning so that there's no division as there was before. There's lion and lamb lying down together. There's millennial peace. Verse 25, And the Lord, even the Savior, shall stand in the midst of his people and shall reign over all flesh. Well, we, his people, better be preparing all flesh for that millennial reign. That's our responsibility. Verse 26, And they who are in the north countries, so there again is these lost tribes, symbolically speaking, shall come in remembrance before the Lord, and their prophets shall hear his voice, and shall no longer stay themselves, and they shall smite the rocks, and the ice shall flow down at their presence. Now I've wondered about that phrase, their prophets shall hear his voice. Now we see in 2 Nephi 29, a Bible, a Bible, we have a Bible, we don't need another Bible, that the Lord reminds them, that, oh, there's more nations than one. And I speak to all the nations of the earth. I've spoken to the Jews, Bible. I've spoken to the Nephites, Book of Mormon. I've spoken to the lost tribes of Israel. And someday you'll all have one another's books. He even mentions, by the way, a fourth group we seldom remember, and that's all the nations of the earth. So as the nations come together, as Babel is reversed, as... Uh, as the land is no longer divided. All the coming together, there's Zion, right? We're trying to establish Zion, one heart, one mind, dwelling together in righteousness, no poor among us, this, the equality of consecration. Uh, it's beautiful what we're aiming and working towards. But this idea of their prophets, now that could literally mean prophets that God has called among them to make sure that they have his word. And I look forward to a gathering of scripture to coincide with a gathering of God's people. That's prophesied and promised in, in 2 Nephi 29 as well. But I also wonder, hit their prophets hearing God's voice, the prophets of the lost tribes? Think of it in these terms, in addition to what I just explained. I've sometimes asked uh, students, who's your favorite Book of Mormon prophet? And they'll say things like, oh, Nephi, or Alma, or Captain Moroni, or Mormon. Great choices. And I agree with them all, and I'll add one more. What about this one? Ezra Taft Benson. And they're like, what? He's not a Book of Mormon prophet. I'm like, you want to bet? <laughs> I lived through his ministry, and what a Book of Mormon prophet. If, if Ezra Taft Benson is a Book of Mormon prophet, I would say that Russell M. Nelson is a prophet of the lost tribes of Israel. He is one of their prophets who has heard the Lord's voice and called upon God's people to go gather Israel on both sides of the veil. What President Benson did for the Book of Mormon, I feel President Nelson doing for the tribes of Israel. Literal, symbolic, spread the word to all people, this side of the veil, the other side of the veil, let God prevail in our lives, do his work, gather his people. Don't stay yourself, don't hold back. Give it all you've got. Go smite the rock. What's that sound like? Again, lots of intertextuality. Smite the rock. Is that Moses? Oh, so water can come forth? 
People that live in a barren wilderness, famine and thirst in the land, as Amos said, bring forth the rivers of living water into their lives. Go and gather them. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Smite the rock. The ice flowing down at their presence. If we think of north countries, and they're symbolically speaking, thinking of them off in some frozen wasteland. There's a lot of parallels between a, a frozen desert and a, and a blistering hot one. Either way, there's no water. I mean, you'd think that, wait, there's Antarctica or the Arctic. There's water everywhere. Well, yeah, but if it's so cold, it's frozen, you still can't drink it. Water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink. Well, you'll have to melt some. And that's what the Lord's asking for. Let the ice flow down at their presence. If the Spirit of God, like a fire, is burning, then perhaps that, that living water trapped in frozen ice can then flow down and, and enable people to drink the water, the living waters of God. That's sharing the gospel too. That's part of gathering Israel. 27, and highway shall be cast up in the midst of the great deep. Isaiah talked about that. that again, the, the valleys and the mountains and, and, and road construction, building this highway so people can come. The great thing about highways as opposed to surface streets is there's no lights to stop traffic. You just go. You flow. You, you speed your way. 28, their enemies shall become a prey unto them. There's role reversal for you. Enemies that preyed upon you, that's no longer the case. 29, in the barren deserts there shall come forth pools of living water. The parched ground shall no longer be a thirsty land. Of course, you're able to smite rocks and allow living water to flow from them. 30, they shall bring forth their rich treasures unto the children of Ephraim, my servants. Remember back in section 124, this proclamation they were supposed to send to the kings of the earth? to bring their gold and their silver and their precious stones and their precious wood to build the house of God, to build the kingdom of God? Well, here, bring all of those rich treasures. Give them to the children of Ephraim. Why? Because Ephraim will know what to do with it. As the birthright tribe, receiving a double portion was not to enrich or aggrandize them. It was to give them sufficient to meet the needs of everyone that was not already provided for. That's the role of a firstborn or of the birthright. You're responsible for everyone. So bring your rich treasures to Ephraim so that Ephraim can then spread it to every other tribe and from every other tribe to every other people until all have a way to come home. 31, the boundaries of the everlasting hills shall tremble at their presence. Makes me think of the Hosanna shout at the dedication of the Salt Lake Temple where the the everlasting hills were trembling and as the echoes reverberated of Hosanna to God and the Lamb. That Christ is coming suddenly to his, his temple. He has a place to call his own. Well, a refuge and place of safety for us all. Verse 32, And there shall they fall down and be crowned with glory, even in Zion, by the hands of the servants of the Lord, even the children of Ephraim. Ah, maybe that's another thing we're doing with those rich treasures that they have brought us. Melting them down to form crowns to place upon the heads of all of God's children. No wonder 33 results. And they shall be filled with songs of everlasting joy. Joy, praise, gratitude, worship. What else would we be singing in that glorious millennial day?
Verse 34, Behold, this is the blessing of the everlasting God upon the tribes of Israel, and the richer blessings upon the head of Ephraim and his fellows. Please don't forget those last three words. And his fellows. Whatever your patriarchal blessing says, whatever tribe of Israel you might be, you are part of the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through which all the families of the earth are meant to be blessed. So may we all join in this endeavor and gather the rest of Israel, and from there gather all of God's children. Verse 35, And they also of the tribe of Judah, so now we're speaking to Jews, after their pain, and I don't know if there's ever been a religious community that, have su that has suffered more pain than they, after that, they shall be sanctified in holiness before the Lord, to dwell in his presence day and night forever and ever. Latter-day Saints are too often accused of supersessionism. Actually, Christians are accused of that, feeling that Christianity has superseded Judaism because the Jews missed their Messiah. Well, the Lord always speaks of a remnant returning. He, the whole Book of Mormon was meant to remind us of the covenants that he's made with your father so that you know you're not cast off forever. It's not a replacement theology. It's a remnant theology. And as a result, we can remember that, rem that remnant, just like God does. Reach out to them and bring them in. The Lord will do all of that as part of the second coming. As Latter-day Saints, I think we have a double danger. Because if Christianity has superseded Judaism, are we sometimes, do we feel that we have superseded Christianity, which superseded Judaism? Uh, we've overcome the apostasy and it's all about us. Therefore, it's not just Christian supersessionism, but it's what I call LDS super duper sessionism. Well, there's some ethical problems there, as well as theological ones, because of that remnant theology. So if we can remember the house of Israel, build upon the shoulders of those giants, if we can remember Christianity, we're building upon their shoulders as well. To understand our responsibility as Ephraim and her fellows is to make sure that everyone comes home. Maybe we're the ones tarrying in Babylon to make sure everyone else gets out. If the, if the ship, if the captain's going down with the ship, thankfully the ship's not going down. But we do have to be the ones to make sure everyone gets on board. Okay? Now verse 36. And now verily saith the Lord, that these things might be known among you, O inhabitants of the earth. I've got to get the water to the end of the road. You need to be aware of these things. And to make that possible, I have sent forth mine angel, flying through the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, who hath appeared unto some, and hath committed it unto man, who shall appear unto many that dwell on the earth. This goes back to that, all that, uh, the heavenly name dropping in section 128, about these, the ministering of angels and, and heavenly messengers that prepared Joseph and others to go spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, it's go time, okay? Uh, if the Book of Mormon says that the coming forth of the book will be a sign that the Father has begun his work of gathering his people, well, these, the ministering of angels is the Doctrine and Covenants equivalent. If truth from the earth and righteousness from heaven, that's Enoch's prophecy in Moses chapter 7, right? That's happening, and it's meant to gather Israel. Verse 37, and this gospel... The one that this book contains shall be preached unto every nation and kindred and tongue and people. 38, and the servants of God shall go forth saying with a loud voice, 
Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. A loud voice suggests confidence. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a power of God unto salvation. And so with a loud voice, don't fear them. Call upon them to fear God, to honor him, to reverence him, to prepare for him. The hour of judgment is here. Verse 39, worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. 40, calling upon the name of the Lord day and night, saying, Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, that thou wouldst come down, that thy mountains might flow down at thy presence. You see what we're praying for there? If verse 40 starts with calling upon the name of God, there's prayer. Do it day and night, this ceaseless striving, this pleading to the Lord to do what? To rend the heavens? To come down? At the very end of the book of Revelation, the way the, the whole this prophecy of the second coming of Christ ends with a plea from John to make it happen. The Lord says at the end of Revelation, Behold, I come quickly. And if I were John, I would have left it at that. Let the Lord have the final word. Great way to end his book, right? But no, John can't help himself. He loves people too much and he loves the Lord too much. So his final words are a benediction upon everyone else. But his second to last words are a response to the Lord's last words. Because as soon as Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly, John responds, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. I love that humble prayer of a beloved disciple. Jesus, you said you'd come. Then come, and come quickly. Let that happen. Rend the heavens. End the night of darkness and bring in the day of light. Allow lions and lambs to lie down together. Reverse the Tower of Babel. Bring back the islands of the sea. Make us one by making us thine. Come. Verse 41, it shall be answered upon their heads. In other words, we'll receive the blessing we're praying and pleading for. For the presence of the Lord shall be as the melting fire that burneth and as the fire which causeth the waters to boil. Of course, the ice will melt then. That Spirit of God, like a fire burning, that cleansing refiner's fire, that's what we're trying to prepare ourselves and the world for, so that like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, off in Babylon, are not singed or scorched by that fire, but rather are purified by it to the point that they meet the fourth person in the furnace. Him that is like unto the Son of God. That, that's who we're trying to, to meet now and prepare for, even amidst the fires of, of Babylon. 42, O Lord, thou shalt come down to make thy name known to thine adversaries, and all nations shall tremble at thy presence. In some ways, 42 responds to verse 40. If in 40 we're told to call upon the name of the Lord, pray, then 42, the prayer begins. O Lord. Again, it's, it, the, the, the audience shifts. We're talking about the Lord in previous verses, and then 42, we're speaking to him. Yeah, if you remember section 65, when the Lord says, pray. Pray for Zion. Pray that the kingdom of God may go forth so the kingdom of heaven may come. And Joseph, at the end of the verse, does exactly that. Okay, then. Here's my petition. I'm asking exactly what you told me to ask for. It's still the, the parent whispering in their child's ears, pray, say this, 
And here the Lord is, is calling upon them to call upon him, and they're responding. Oh, Lord, come. Come down. Let your enemies, your adversaries, know your name. Let all the nations tremble at your presence. 43, when thou doest terrible things, things they look not for. Oh, it will be a shocker. Uh, things they have not considered, they will consider. There's a prophecy from the Old Testament. That kings will shut their mouths because things that they've never thought of will be, will be shown them. Oh, it must take something to silence a sovereign. Verse 44, yea, when thou comest down. So this is still part of our prayer here. When thou comest down and the mountains flow down at thy presence, thou shalt meet him who rejoiceth and worketh righteousness, who remembereth thee in thy ways. You remember we're going out to meet him? So those are the first to meet him. We've bridged the gap. We've closed the distance. And because we work righteousness, we rejoice in his name. We remember his ways. 45, for since the beginning of the world have not men heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath any eye seen, O God, besides thee, how great things thou hast prepared for him that waiteth for thee. Again, <laughs> waiting suggests you're already prepared. Ready and waiting, we say. That great phrase from Corinthians of eye hath not seen and ear hath not heard, and neither hath entered into the heart of man that which God hath prepared for those who love him. You get the same sense in verse 45. It will be better than anything we can imagine. Things we look not for. 46, the prayer then ends and we go back to prophesying. As part of this second coming of Christ, notice what will occur. And it shall be said... Who is this that cometh down from God in heaven with dyed garments, yea, from the regions which are not known, clothed in his glorious apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? Almost an echo there of the premortal council. Whom shall I send? Well, this lion of the tribe of Judah, this lion who appears now as a lamb who is sacrificed. That's Revelation 5. Well, here, who's this that cometh? Whom did God send? Someone in dyed garments? We're going to come back to that thought in the next few verses. But who is this that is, that is clothed in glorious apparel? You get a sense that the focus is on what he's wearing. But then the answer in 47, and he shall say, I am he who spake in righteousness, mighty to save. He teaches only truth. He speaks in righteousness. He cannot water down his standards or his commandments. But Despite that, that high standard, cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. I speak in righteousness. Still, he is mighty to save. He fills the gap between his expectations and our abilities to fulfill them. He fills it with grace and then condescends to come to our level to bring us back up to his. He is mighty to save. But what did it cost him to fill the guilt gap with grace? Verse 48, the Lord shall be red in his apparel, his garments like him that treadeth in the wine vat. That's why we're so confused by this, this vision, this, this, what we're seeing, that he who descends from above is not dressed in white like we had expected or like so many paintings portray him. He's descending in red apparel, like someone who's trodden the wine vat the wine press, we'll see it uh, described in a moment, dyed garments. 
Keep going here. Verse 49, so great shall be the glory of his presence that the sun shall hide his face in shame and the moon shall withhold its light and the stars shall be hurled from their places. We keep seeing that in imagery of second coming. The sun darkened, the moon turned to blood, the stars falling from their place. Same idea here. The sun, number one, I can't, I can't look upon that. If the Lord cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance, then the last thing I want is to shine a light on people's iniquities. And so the sun itself refusing to give that light. Another possibility is it simply, oh, in humility, realizing I'm not really needed here since the light of the world has come. Talk about being eclipsed by something greater. The moon withholding its light. Moon is light is, moonlight is usually uh, symbolic of peace. But there has been no peace. This is Armageddon time, although the Prince of Peace is now returning. Stars hurled from their places. People that you set your sights by. Oh, Babylonian constellations, for example, and worldly stars, movie stars, sports stars, whatever. No, there are more important stars to follow. And then back to the idea of the clothing. Verse 50, his voice shall be heard. I have trodden the winepress alone. I have brought judgment upon all people. None were with me. And I have trampled them in my fury. I did tread upon them in my anger. And their blood have I sprinkled upon my garments and stained all my raiment. For this was the day of vengeance which was in my heart. Now, there's strong language in 51, words like fury and anger and vengeance. Hold on to them long enough to get to verse 52, because 52 will soften all of them. It will balance things with justice and mercy. It'll prove that everlasting contrary. But to see the clothing side before we move on to that balancing act, over and over in these last few verses, from 46 to 51, it's the focus on Christ's died stained garments. Stained, uh, Elder Maxwell described it as robes of reminding red. You see, there's a beautiful irony here that, that Christ's blood purifies our garments, but our blood stains his. His righteousness eliminates my sin, but my sin, oh, it's because it goes upon his righteousness. It truly is a role reversal here. When It always strikes me when we talk about the Last Supper and Jesus washing the feet. And I've sometimes asked my students, where did the dirt go? Because dirt doesn't disappear when we wash. Remember the old riddle, what gets wetter the more that it dries? And the answer is a towel. Oh, yeah, the towel, it's, it's not causing evaporation. That'll eventually dry out the towel. But the towel is taking water and whatever it's in is in it, dirt, for example, and putting it upon itself. Now think about the Last Supper. It describes Jesus taking a towel and washing the apostles' feet. But it says that it was a towel with which he was girded. Now that's an interesting one. So somehow he took this towel and kind of wrapped it around himself. It was, he was wearing the towel, in other words. So that when he washed the apostles' feet and wiped them with his towel, the stains of their journey through life was transferred from them to him, but namely to his clothing, a towel he was wearing. Now think of that in terms of sin. 
and it's not brown dirt, it's now red blood. But it's transferring from my garments to his. Isaiah puts this so powerfully when he describes that the best we could do is, is filth. I mean, talk about strong language. He says, all their righteousness is as filthy rags. It's the most, that's the best we could come up with. It's still, it's still stained. I just can't get this out. And that's why the Lord says, you weren't meant to. You were meant to take it off and give it to me. That's what repentance is. It is role reversal. And I'm willing to condescend so that you can con-ascend. In fact, I will give you my robes of righteousness if you'll give me your filthy rags. It's haunting to me to realize when I see pictures of Jesus in white descending and thinking, no, it won't be that way. It will be robes of reminding red, just like Elder Maxwell said. And who will be wearing the white I expected to see Jesus in? We will be. We'll be wearing white because Jesus was willing to wear red. He trod the winepress and he did it alone. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But there he is trampling them in his fury. That's a phrase we have to wrestle with. You see, this is where the line comes from Battle Hymn of the Republic. He hath trampled out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Now, obviously, that hymn didn't come from section 133. In many ways, it came from Revelation chapter 14 that speaks of a gathering of the clusters of grapes to put them into the winepress of the wrath of God. It's as if we, the grapes of wrath, have been filling ourselves with the wickedness of the world. And God is trying to get that sin out of us. But to get it out of us, it's going to end up all over him. As you're trampling the wine press. And remember, Gethsemane means olive press. So same kind of imagery here. Crushing olives to bring oil or crushing grapes to bring juice that then becomes wine. I mean, sacramental wine. So many powerful images here coming together. And so there is Jesus trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored, getting the wrath of God out of them and onto himself, which suffering caused me, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain. All of those, that imagery in section 19. Now, if you go back to Revelation 14, listen to how John describes it. Thrust in thy sharp sickle, gather the clusters of the vine of the earth. Gather, huh? For her grapes are fully ripe, and the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth. How many angels have we seen already in 133? And gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. There's the fury, there's the anger, there's the vengeance, there's the justice. And the winepress was trodden without the city. See, Gethsemane was outside the city of Jerusalem. But then this phrase from Revelation 14. If he's trampling out grapes, you'd expect juice to flow from the winepress, but that's not what happened. In John's vision, blood came out of the winepress. And then notice how deep and how wide this pool of redeeming blood spread, even unto the horse bridles. That's tall enough to immerse someone by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. I did the math once, and it comes out to somewhere around 200 miles. And then more curious, 
I, this was years ago when I was really wrestling with Revelation 14. I went back to my map section in the scriptures and found one where you'd see kind of Israel from a distance. And I put a, I kind of put a pin down on Jerusalem where Gethsemane was, this wine press without the city, and then measured out 1,600 furlongs. When I drew this circle, as if John were were hovering above in heaven, looking down upon this solitary figure, treading the winepress alone, watching his redeeming blood spill out from the winepress until it covered that, that radius of redemption. When I looked at the, the circle I drew, I was shocked at how large it was because it went uh, west into the Mediterranean it went east across the Jordan, out, out of Israel. It went north up into Lebanon. It went south into the Red Sea, making a reality of that Red Sea. But as I looked at the circle, it dawned on me, that covers all of Israel. And that's when the Spirit quickly confirmed the reality of that statement. Yes, the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ indeed covers all of Israel. There's nothing you've done that is beyond his redeeming reach. That you can come home. You can prepare. There's enough oil to add to your vessel. Just come. Christ, that, that's why it's not just the fury and the anger and the vengeance of 51. Look at 52 now. And now the year of my redeemed is come. And they shall mention the loving kindness of their Lord and all that he has bestowed upon them according to his goodness and according to his loving kindness forever and ever. Never read 51 without 52. Because if you see an angry, vengeful God just smashing grapes instead of a good and kind and loving Lord drawing the wickedness out of each of us, transferring our blood onto himself so that we can go clean, wearing red so we can wear white, that, that's the role reversal of the redemption. No wonder verse 53 puts it in these terms. In all their afflictions, he was afflicted. That's the perfect empathy that Jesus gained in Gethsemane. The angel of his presence saved them, Remember an angel was sent to Gethsemane to strengthen Jesus? Well, now it's his presence that's saving us. He's the angel in our gardens, and he does lift and strengthen. In his love, in his pity, he redeemed them. He bore them. He carried them all the days of old. By the way, to bear and to carry, those are mothering verbs. Often in Isaiah the prophet turned to those, that kind of language. How better to, to symbolize the love of God than to speak of a love of a mother who bears and carries, just as God did all the days of old. 54, yea, Enoch also, and they who were with him, the prophets who were before him, Noah also, they who were before him, Moses also, they who were before him. And from Moses to Elijah, from Elijah to John, who were with Christ in his resurrection, in the holy apostles, with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Talk about a cloud of witnesses. They shall be in the presence of the Lamb. And if all of them, then why not all of us? 
Sure enough, 56, the graves of the saints shall be opened. They shall come forth and stand on the right hand of the Lamb, when he shall stand upon Mount Zion and upon the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And they shall sing the song of the Lamb day and night forever and ever. There's an echo of the singing we see in the book of Revelation, from pre-mortality all the way to the second coming of Jesus Christ. There's that song of the redeemed that we saw back in section 84. Oh, can you hear the... The, the strings and the woodwinds starting to get in tune, those first notes. I love that at the very beginning of a, of a symphony concert where everyone's just getting tuned, getting prepared before the conductor actually arrives. Oh, who's the first violinist? Who stands up and gives us an opening note so that we can tune our strings to that when the bridegroom comes, when the conductor appears? Are we ready to play these songs of praise? 57, for this cause, that men might be made partakers of the glories which were to be revealed, as opposed to those wicked who are cut off from his presence, to make them partakers, the Lord sent forth the fullness of his gospel, his everlasting covenant, reasoning in plainness and simplicity. That's why he restored the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why he did it through someone as weak and simple as Joseph Smith, so that even in our weakness, in our simplicity, in plainness, we would know how to reason with others and give them reason for the hope that is in us so similar hope can be in them. We want you to partake of these glories. Prepare yourself along, alongside us. 58, to prepare the weak, that's you and me, for those things which are coming on the earth and for the Lord's errand in the day when the weak shall confound the wise and the little one become a strong nation and two, I sound like missionary companions, shall put their tens of thousands to flight. Oh, that's a, an echo of what we see back in section one also, of just what the restoration of the gospel is meant to do, so that we can go forth and do all of that. 59, and by the weak things of the earth, the Lord shall thresh the nations by the power of his spirit. Well, of course, we'll need his spirit, because as weak things, we can never pull that off ourselves. To thresh the nations? A threshing floor where you've already gathered out the wheat from among the tares. But now that you've brought it to the threshing floor, we can do some further separating. We can thresh the grain. It's all good grain, but there's still chaff amidst the wheat. We want the kernels. And so to thresh that grain so that it separates out what's unnecessary. You see where this constant course of purification we go from Babylon and gather out of Babylon. We've left the tares behind, gathered out the wheat, but there's still continual purification and sanctification required. And what better place to do it than at a threshing floor? Where did David build or decide to build the temple that his son finally constructed? At a threshing floor, a place where chaff and, and kernel are distinguished. Oh, beautiful imagery here. So much temple throughout section 133 even though when it's received, they don't know anything about temples yet. Okay? The Lord is giving them previews of coming attractions. Verse 60, for this cause, these commandments were given. This book of commandments, this appendix, this preface, they were commanded to be kept from the world in the, in the day that they were given, but now are to go forth unto all flesh. We're spreading this word. 61, and this according to the mind and will of the Lord, who ruleth over all things, he wants this word to go forth. 62, unto him that repenteth, there's our one word verse, 
and sanctifieth himself before the Lord shall be given eternal life. And that's a gift, the greatest of all the gifts of God. He wants to give to all of his daughters and sons. 63, and upon them that hearken not to the voice of the Lord. Remember how this chapter began? Hearken, will you, will you not? To those who won't shall be fulfilled that which was written by the prophet Moses, that they should be cut off from among the people. After all, if the Lord is speaking, if his arm is bared, what's in his hand? A sword that is bathed in heaven. It is the word of God that is coming forth. And those that will not hearken to it, or the voice of his servants, it is the same, he said back in section 1, then of course you are cut off from among the people. You end up cutting yourself off. 64, and also that which was written by the prophet Malachi. So if this is our little our Doctrine and Covenants book of Revelation, it's also our Doctrine and Covenants book of Malachi. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. That's the beginning of Malachi chapter 4. That, that's the, the words of, of Moroni as he appears to a 17-year-old Joseph. We are preparing the earth for this, this fire that cleanses and purifies and, and prepares. It's, it's the end of harvest time. That's how Jacob 5 ends. That incredible allegory of the olive tree. It ends with the burning of the vineyard. All the fruit has been gathered out. And without those binding links that we saw a couple weeks ago, redemption of the dead, without hearts of fathers turning to children and vice versa, then the earth is utterly wasted at his coming. We've talked about that several times. That's the family trees left with neither root, your ancestors, or branch, your descendants. And as we've talked, the Lord never intended a logging camp for what was supposed to be a forest of family trees. We are trying to bind these hearts together. No more separation. Bring all the aisles. Reverse the Tower of Babel. All of this. Come out. Verse 65 then, Wherefore this shall be the answer of the Lord unto them. In other words, how will he respond as we are crying to him? 66, In that day when I came unto mine own, no man among you received me. You were driven out. When I called again, there was none of you to answer. Yet my arm was not shortened at all that I could not redeem, neither my power to deliver. See, in 66 and 67, again, he's referring to an Isaiah passage, one that Nephi quotes at the end of First Nephi, for example, about this idea of why didn't you respond when I called to you? I mean, this is... The sorrow, when, when God says hearken, there's almost this holding his breath and hoping that we actually will. So many of these revelations of the Doctrine and Covenants, including this one and the first one and so many in between, he's calling. And then he's calling again, right? 66, I came and nobody received. 67, I called again and nobody answered. When I was a young father, my favorite moment of the day was coming home. Because back then, my kids still believed in the glory of that, that most beautiful of primary songs, I'm so glad when Daddy comes home. Now, if Christ is the Father of our covenants, then that song becomes a second com coming anthem. Okay, I'm so glad when Daddy comes home, you better believe it. And my little kids at the time were, were glad for me. We lived in this old house, and, and the driveway would come around right in front of the, the living room window. 
and and my ki- there was a couch right in front of that window on the inside and my kids knew when daddy was coming home from work and my oldest two would often just stand on the couch and their little cute little heads would poke out over the top of it out the window as I came around and I just see them start to bounce up and down like so glad that dad's home and I'd open the door and they'd yeah, come running and one would sit on one foot and grab that leg and the other would sit on the other foot and grab that one and I'd kind of tromp around the house uh, picking the, you know, lifting them up and just having fun together. Those were glorious days as a dad. Uh, now it, it's not so much I'm so glad when daddy comes home unless they need some money. Uh, it, we've lost something there sadly with time. And so in a way I feel the Lord's pain of calling and I'm home. Does no one care anymore? Is anybody sitting on the couch looking out with eager anticipation? Is anyone prepared for the coming of Christ? When the Son of Man returns, will he find, will he find faith upon the earth? I am haunted by and motivated by that question that Jesus asked himself in the book of Luke. Will anyone believe in me? Will there be faith upon the earth? When I call, will you hearken? The irony of the end of 67 is, my arm's not shortened that I can't redeem. I do have power to deliver. It's like, have we given up on God? Do we, do we falsely assume that he just can't come to our aid? Nothing is further from the truth. His hand is not shortened. It is extended and ready to reach if we'll just reach back to him. 68, behold, at my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I'm the same one who delivered Israel from Egypt. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink. They die for thirst. I can do the same for you. If you're in the bondage of sin, if you're, that's another Isaiah phrase, will God deliver the the lawful captive? See, lawful captive. You're in prison because of your own, you trapped yourself. You deserve it. You're getting what you deserve. And so often in those circumstances, we don't think we're, we're worthy of God's mercy because we know we're deserving of his justice. Well, in answer to that rhetorical question, can God even deliver the lawful captives? The answer is yes. He will free you, just as he did the the Israelite slaves in Egypt. Verse 69, I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. That, again, it harkens back to the plagues of Egypt. Darkness. 70, and this shall ye have of my hand. Ye shall lie down in sorrow. Now that's another allusion, so much intertextuality here, an allusion to an Isaiah passage that talks about us encompassing us ourselves about with sparks. Uh, think about it, just a spark, quick flash of light, when you could be surrounded with the light of the world, so bright that even the, the sun doesn't need to shine anymore, eclipsed by something greater. Lying down in sorrow will be the result of ignoring the light of the world in order to follow the little sparks that falling stars of earthly celebrities are trying to give us. He then wraps up this revelation in the final few verses. 71, behold and lo, there are none to deliver you if you don't turn to the deliverer of Israel. Ye obeyed not my voice when I called to you out of the heavens. Ye believed not my servants. Remember, it is the same. And when they were sent unto you, ye received them not. We've got to reverse that and invite all to receive the word of God through his authorized servants. Wherefore, 72, they sealed up the testimony. They bound up the law. 
and you were delivered over unto darkness. That's Isaiah as well. Bind up the law, seal up the testimony. It's like close up shop. Close the book. It's time to go. Wrap it up. I have done everything I could, but I can't postpone the marriage feast forever. Wise virgins, foolish virgins, which ones will we be? 73, these foolish shall go away into outer darkness where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Behold, the Lord your God has spoken it. Amen. Now, boy, does that revelation end on a downer. He's speaking to the, the foolish virgins there. Or if we want to tra trade it out for another parable, there's the parable of the marriage of the king's son, where in this one, all the, the people who were previously invited come up with excuses as to why we can't come to the feast. And so the Lord, the king says, well, it's the, it's the marriage feast of the son. Uh, he, the wedding feast must be provided with, with guests. So go out into the highways and byways, beat the bushes and bring whoever will come. And as they come, the king comes forth and sees in this parable a man that does not have his wedding garment on. Now that would have been his fault because the king would have provided whatever was necessary for those who didn't realize that, that they were being brought into the, to the feast. But for someone, for whatever reason, decided, nah, I'm not interested. I don't want to hearken to your voice. I don't want to put on your robes of righteousness. I'd rather wear my own filthy rags. That's when the king looks at him and, and says, friend. Interesting, he would call him that. Friend, how camest thou in hither without thy wedding garment? And the man is speechless. He has no excuses to give. He had every opportunity. And thus the, the, the judgment call. Bind him hand and foot and cast him out, and there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. That's the rest of the parable that seems to be hinted at here. Many called, few chosen. We learned about that in section 121. Have we learned that one lesson? Are we tapping into the powers of heaven that can only be handled upon principles of righteousness? Are we heeding the inviting voice of the Good Shepherd? Or are we turning a blind eye or a deaf ear to his entreaties? If the Lord our God hath spoken it, then may we listen. In some ways, I wish section 133 really were the last section of the Doctrine and Covenants. It is a fitting capstone to this capstone scripture. I do testify of his his loving kindness and his goodness, his mercy and his pity. At the same time, I testify of his justice and his judgment, which is why I'm trying to, to share that one word verse with the world, to repent. Something I need to do, something we all need to do, to prepare ourselves for this day so that it can be a glorious and great day instead of a dreadful one. As a student of mine once said, sweet, young, like sophomore girl way back in seminary days, as we were talking about great and dreadful and thinking, oh yeah, well, for the righteous, it'll be great. And for the wicked, it'll be dreadful. And that's as far as I went. She, sensitive soul that she was, raised her hand and said, but for Jesus, won't it be both? I said, what do you mean? And she just pointed out what should have been obvious to us all. He loves them all. And so redeeming the righteous, of course, will be a great day for him. But having to condemn the wicked 
when he gave them every opportunity. How oft would I have gathered thee as a hen gathereth her chickens, but ye would not. Oh, more, no more dreadful feeling could come to him than knowing that those invitations went unheeded. I pray that we can listen to them ourselves and respond to them and then spread the word to all of the world so that they can come home too. Now, like I said, that's the end of 133 and technically the end of the Doctrine and Covenants, but there is more to come. And in section 134, which we'll be able to briefly uh, study now, and then next week and the week after with 135 and 6 and 7 and 8, as we're coming to the conclusion of this year, I, I hope that what we learned back in January from section 1 and what we're learning here from section 133 will serve as our bookends as they point us to Jesus Christ. I have marvelous truth there. Now, 134. The history behind this is, is bleak. It is Missouri period. It's now 1835, and the saints have been driven out of Jackson County. Uh, all kinds of Missouri persecution. The saints are, they, remember they're told you need to go seek redress at the hand of the judge. And if that doesn't work, the governor. If that doesn't work, the president. If that doesn't work, then, well, buckle up, because the Lord will come forth from, from heaven in vengeance, which is what the Civil War accomplished. But in 134, the, the question is, how do you Latter-day Saints feel about government? You've been, you've been burned by it repeatedly. Uh, are you up in arms now and want to create your, your kingdom on the Mississippi? That's still a few years ahead, but uh, to see theocracy is the big threat that, non, that, that outsiders uh, fear with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Well, if Joseph Smith is their prophet, is this a Mormon Muhammad with their anti-Islam? Is this the Mormon Pope in their anti-Catholicism? Is this some rival authority? Uh, how do you feel about church and state? Do you believe in a separation like the United States does? Do you want to just overcome that, kind of jump the wall of separation between church and state and take over the country? Is that what you're up, uh, up to? Well, section 134 answers some of those questions. I often call it the 12 articles of faith for the 12th article of faith. If you recall, the 12th article of faith is the one that says that we believe in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, and magistrates, and in honoring, obeying, and sustaining the law. I actually had an old roommate that said he was driving to a mission homecoming or farewell, I can't remember which, with a bunch of other like return missionary buddies, and they were late, and so they were speeding along a Utah freeway uh, to get to this missionary homecoming. Well, they got pulled over. Uh, and the, the highway patrolman pulls him over and, and looks in and sees a bunch of young guys with white shirts and ties on a Sunday morning in Utah and probably safely assumes that he knew where they were going. And in his, in his mercy, in, in his pity, in his loving kindness, he smiles at the driver and says to him, um, can you repeat to me the 12th article of faith? And kind of dumbfounded, this return missionary was scrambling, which one's that? And then it was like, uh, we believe, wow, which one do we believe, 12? Uh, and then it dawned on him. <laughs> and a little sheepishly, with his tail between his legs, he said, we believe in honoring, obeying, sustaining the law, right? And the policeman smiled and said, yes. If you believe these things, see that you do them, and then let them go. 
Well, he drove a little slower to the, re the, the rest of the way. But I do love the thought of how do we feel about the 12th article of faith? Do we, do we really honor that? And notice it's kings and presidents and rulers and magistrates. So there's not just one size fits all type of government. It's honoring any of those, which is better than none of the above. Okay. Well, section 134 has 12 verses, each of which starts with we believe, except one where it's we don't believe. And so here we have the 12 Articles of Faith about the 12th Article of Faith. What do we believe about governments and honoring and obeying and sustaining those laws? Well, let's see. This was written, by the way, by Oliver Cowdery, which is another reason for why it's after Section 133. It's not, it's not Joseph here. In fact, Joseph was on a mission uh, elsewhere, came back and wasn't totally sure if they should have gone ahead without him, but it was voted on and sustained. I thought, well... What better way to support democracy than to honor a democratically uh, uh, ratified statement on government? So here we have it now in the Doctrine and Covenants. Verse 1, we believe, so we're getting into our Articles of Faith idea, that governments, plural, so multiple possible forms, were instituted of God for the benefit of man. And that he holds men accountable for their acts in relation to them, both in making laws and administering them for the good and safety of society. So it's not just social contract. It's not just, you know, Hobbes's Leviathan. Uh, it is God wants there to be government. He wants there to be structure. My house is a house of order, after all. There is law and there is accountability for that law. We see that accountability in verse 1. How do you act according to the government, or excuse me, in relation to the government. Are you making laws? Are you administering laws? That was part of the problem in Missouri. Laws, good laws had been made. They just weren't being enforced. They weren't being administered correctly. And so therefore, they weren't getting, it wasn't for the saints' good and safety. And come to think of it, it wasn't for the good and safety of the Missourians themselves, since at certain points the saints did fight back to defend themselves. Uh, some chaos erupted in Missouri because verse 1 wasn't being followed by those uh, that were in charge of the government there. Verse 2, what else do we believe? We believe that no government can exist in peace except such laws are framed and held inviolate as will secure to each individual the free exercise of conscience, the right and control of property, and the protection of life. And all of those things were being infringed upon in Missouri. You can't read section 134 without the context of Missouri waiting in the wings. It's there in the background the whole time. And so no wonder there was no peace for the saints in Missouri. The government wasn't keeping inviolate the laws that, they, that, that, they, that they'd agreed to. And this idea then of holding sacred these particular rights, the free exercise of conscience, control of property, protection of life, think about the Declaration of Independence that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that certain rights are given us by our Creator and they are inalienable. In other words, they can't be taken away. And what's listed in the Declaration? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, here you get a similar statement. Life, there's the protection of life. Liberty, there's the free exercise of conscience. The pursuit of happiness, well, here's the right and control of property which is actually closer to uh, Thomas Jefferson's original draft of the Declaration, where it was life, liberty, property, rather than life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Well, all three are inviolate. 
Verse 3, we believe that all governments necessarily require civil officers and magistrates to enforce the laws of the same, and that such as will administer the law in equity and justice should be sought for and upheld by the voice of the people, if a republic, or the will of the sovereign. So we'll even honor monarchy, as long as the monarch's doing his job. And what is that job? The job of civil officers, magistrates, sovereigns, enforce the laws. Do what you said you would do. We were banking on that. We were trying to keep our end of the, of the law. Please keep yours. Remember Martin Van Buren, well, your cause is just, but I can do nothing for you. There's the pilot uh, washing his hands equivalent. Uh, sorry, I can't, I can't help. But that's a state issue. It's not a, a, not a federal government one. Well, maybe, maybe not. But the state government isn't doing anything. So where are we supposed to turn? Civil officers have to do what they're called upon to do. Equity and justice demand it. Verse 4, we believe that religion is instituted of God. Ah, now we see the parallel. In verse 1, governments were instituted of God. In verse 4, religion is instituted of God. He's behind them both. So separation of church and state, we'll see more about that in a moment. But when you trace them both back to their origin, there's no separation. God is behind them both. And on the religious side, back to verse 4, Men are amenable to him, to God, and to him only for the exercise of it, for the free exercise of religion, unless their religious opinions prompt them to infringe upon the rights and liberties of others. And that's an important caveat. In other words, what's the, what are the boundaries of my liberty? Well, the boundaries of someone else's. And if my liberty starts to infringe or impinge upon someone else's liberty, then mine needs to be pulled back to safe, to safe space, and vice versa. If their liberties are starting to take, uh, infringe upon mine, then they need to step back. Jefferson himself, author of the Declaration, was talking about religious freedom when he said, it does me no injury for my neighbor to say they are, there are 20 gods or no god. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. See what he's saying there? I, I'm totally okay with freedom of religion. In fact, the Founding Fathers preferred them because if there's enough of them, then they will keep one another at bay from, from taking over. Okay? And Jefferson, who was definitely not an Orthodox Christian by any stretch of the imagination, he was a deist, uh, but believed in the morality of Jesus, if not the supernatural, miraculous, and the divine, there was a sense for him and many of his fellow founders that as long as your religion isn't infringing upon other people's rights, then freedom of religion should have no bounds. And that's the sense we get in verse 4. But what if it does cross those lines? Keep going in 4. But we do not believe that human law has a right to interfere in prescribing rules of worship to bind the consciences of men, nor dictate forms for public or private devotion, that the civil magistrate should restrain crime but never control conscience, should punish guilt but never suppress the freedom of the soul. I do love the way Oliver put that. Uh, crime, but not conscience. Guilt, but not freedom of the soul. You understand the limits of religion there and also the limits of government there? We see this in the First Amendment to the Constitution that, that guarantees that, that initial, uh, in the Bill of Rights, here's the initial right that needs to be protected. That Congress will not establish religion. It's not to, it's not to prescribe a certain rule of, of worship. That would bind the consciences of men. And that's not life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Uh, 
but at the same time, it won't interfere with the free exercise of religion. See, there's those two halves of that, of the religious part of the First Amendment, the Establishment Clause as well as the Free Exercise Clause. And those sometimes can come into to friction with one another. We have a long history in the United States, at least, of Supreme Court rulings and, and how do we come down on the side of church or state. And, and so often, even when we think about this wall of separation between church and state, and that phrase isn't in the Constitution, it's not in the Bill of Rights, it was from a letter that, that Thomas Jefferson wrote, but in that time period, the wall of separation between church and state wasn't to protect the state from the church. It was to protect the church from the state. And you get a sense of that in verse 4 of you civil magistrates need to protect our religious freedom, not infringe upon it yourselves with some kind of an establishment of an official religion, but also not trying to, to decrease or interfere with our free exercise of it. By the way, if you look more closely into verse 4, it's not just about binding conscience and not just about private devotion, but the word public appears there as well. You're not supposed to dictate public or private devotion. We, talk, we live in a day that now keeps talking about the naked public sphere. In other words, we need to denude the public sphere of any of the, the trappings or the vestments of religion. That we don't want to see any of that out in public. Or we don't want to see, I mean, you can, you can believe whatever you want behind closed doors. Your private devotion is fine. But publicly, I sometimes hear people say, keep your theology out of politics. To which I want to say, fine, will you keep your ideology out of politics then? Because ideology is, or I mean, theology is just ideology plus God. So ideology is just theology without God. In other words, you don't want to let me allow my beliefs to determine my behaviors? Well, that's all we ever do, is have our beliefs determining our behaviors. I can't anymore take away my beliefs as I enter a voting booth than you can. And so, again, I don't want to infringe upon other people's rights, uh, but, you, but you shouldn't be infringing upon mine. It's a delicate balance, a, a tricky dance that we're trying to dance in this diverse and pluralistic age. In verse 5, we believe that all men are bound to sustain and uphold the respective governments in which they reside. Now that's the closest that we have to our actual 12th article of faith. Honor it, obey it, sustain it. But then notice this little loophole at the end of verse 5 that sometimes goes unnoticed. Believe me, it didn't go unnoticed during the anti-polygamy legislation in the 1870s and 80s. Okay, So we believe we should sustain and uphold the government and then this, while protected in their inherent and inalienable rights by the laws of such governments. Did you catch the loophole? Oh, we will definitely honor you, but are you honoring the law? We'll support you in your positions, but are you living up to the responsibilities of your position? In other words, we'll keep constitutional law, but is it constitutional? We saw that back in, in the, the same time period in the Revelations in 98 and 101 and 103, all, all about uh, Zion's camp and so on. What do we do about this? And what's the constitutional law of the land? Emphasis on constitutional. They're, they're, I, I wonder, again, those saints in, during the anti-polygamy legislation and saints going in hiding. Uh, or even think about civil disobedience. 
Emerson lived at this time period, and he writes a, uh, an article, an essay, Civil Disobedience. And I think of Martin Luther King and those brave men and women, uh, black as well as white, that were trying to fight for civil rights in the 1960s, for example, 1950s and 60s, and to see, well, are we honoring, sustaining, obeying law? Well, better question, is the law protecting us in our inherent and inalienable rights? Because if it isn't, then there is room for civil disobedience. Now keep reading in five, especially if you're starting to think of, of, hmm, does this give me license to do certain things right now in 2021? You've got to be really careful here. Uh, verse five continues, sedition and rebellion are unbecoming every citizen. But then again, the, the caveat, thus protected. For this, we could even go back to the Revolutionary War that the British would have considered seditious and rebellious and treasonous. Whereas for the patriots, as we call them, not, not, not the traitors, but the patriots, you're not protecting us according to the laws that, that you're supposed to protect us by. You have taken away our inalienable rights. And so it's not treason. It's freedom fighting. It's not rebellion alone. It's revolution with rights on our side. Keep going, that all governments have a right to enact such laws as in their own judgments are best calculated to secure the public interest. At the same time, however, holding sacred the freedom of conscience. That we keep coming back to that in this revelation. Are we honoring agency? Otherwise, it's Satan's plan just transplanted to earth. Are we holding sacred the freedom of conscience? If government's doing that, then we owe them our allegiance, even if we don't agree with everything that they say. That's an important balancing act too. Verse six, especially in a democratic society where you might be the minority and majority rules. Verse six, we believe that every man should be honored in his station, rulers and magistrates as such, being placed for the protection of the innocent and the punishment of the guilty. And that to the laws, all men show respect and deference. As without them, peace and harmony would be supplanted by anarchy and terror. Now pause right there for a moment, because it's interesting that he would mention honored in their stations. Okay, so we got rulers and magistrates in certain stations. We've talked about this before in terms of like offices in the priesthood or callings that someone holds where it's like the bishop. And when the bishop refers to his, like the four walls he's in as the bishop's office instead of my office, because it's not about me, it's about the role of bishop. I just happen to wear that hat for, for years and then, I'm, and then it's some, given to somebody else. There's a difference between the person and the position. And I, I sense that in verse six of honor them in their station. Or as he said later, it's respect and deference given to the laws, not necessarily the person that's drafting them or the person that's called upon to enforce them. Now we should get, we should search for the best that we possibly can. We saw that back in verse three, right? Those that will administer the laws and equity and justice should be sought for and upheld. That's part of our problem. I think we're not seeking for the best candidates uh, or not. We're, the, the system is so messy that sometimes I think it scares off the honest and the good and the upright. It's going to be, I'm going to have to play politics. And I'd rather be a statesman than a politician. And unfortunately, then the statesmen, the potential statesmen don't even start the process. And all we're left with are politicians. Uh, and again, not, I'm not trying to brand them all negatively. 
But I think there's a difference that we see in verse 6 about people versus positions. And I think that's important for us to understand. That especially if we're in a, a case, or based on your perspective on things, you can't agree with the, the positions or the platforms of a certain candidate, or, for, or even a, more than candidate, you just wouldn't vote for them. But the person who actually won. So a person who is in office, what if I don't agree with their position? Well, I can speak out against it. I can vote for others. I can, I can be an active and engaged citizen, as we all should be. But do we slam them, and especially do we slam the position itself just because we disagree with the policies of those that are in it? Now let's take it up a notch. What about the person? What if it's not just policy? Because yes, I understand I'm not the majority. I'm not the sovereign. I can't do rule of one. And if a majority prefers this outcome to the one that I had preferred, then I need to honor the system and its results. But what if the, I have no respect for the person, their lack of character, their lack of integrity? Well, verse 6 gives me a clue as to what I can do. And I can still honor the station. I can still have deference and respect for the law and that's sometimes the best that I can come up with. That I will honor the presidency of the United States, even if at times or at seasons I cannot necessarily honor the president as a person. I will honor the position. And I think what's tragic is when we just wow, put the two into one and just think that the president has dishonored the presidency and so I have no respect for the presidency. I'll be very careful. That position that deserves our honor and our respect. And the same is true of other magistrates and rulers, whatever type of government you may be living under. I hope that makes sense. I hope that has helped me navigate several presidencies on both sides of the political aisle. And, uh, and I'll leave it at that. But keep going in verse 6. Human laws being instituted for the express purpose of regulating our interests as individuals and nations between man and man, and divine laws given of heaven, prescribing rules on spiritual matters for faith and worship. And then notice the end, both to be answered by man to his maker. So back in verse 1, government was instituted of God. In verse 4, religion is instituted of God. In verse 6, Human laws are instituted for certain purposes. Religious laws are for spiritual concerns, but both are answerable by us to our Maker. That we will be held responsible by both church and state, and we owe deference and respect in both sides of things. Crime, as well as sin, is punishable. In fact, it's really interesting in the Book of Mormon to see the the government shift in Mosiah 29. That was, an, that was a more interesting lesson than I thought it would be back last year, if you want to go back and, and review that video. But to see the increase, not just of freedoms that they were after when they shifted from kings to judges, but an increase in accountability is what they wanted. We want to be responsible for our own decisions. Okay, that's good. That's really good. That's, that's God's plan rather than Satan's. Then fast forward, and it's interesting when you see someone like Korahor come in, and there's all these issues. Actually, we don't have to go that far yet. When you see Alma, the chief priest, and Mosiah, the second, still the king, 
trying to figure out jurisdiction on certain issues. It's really fascinating. It's like Mosiah 26, I think. Uh, and somebody sinned, and it's like, uh, Alma doesn't know what to do, so he goes to King Mosiah and says, what should we do in this situation? And Mosiah's like, uh, good, good question, but you, you're going to have to answer it, because it wasn't crime. Crime is my, is my responsibility. I'm the civil sovereign. But sin, as long as it's not criminal, if it just goes against the commandments of God rather than the laws of man, then that's a religious issue, and that's where you come in. So good luck with that. Uh, and again, when you get to Korahor in Alma 30, it's really interesting to see him arraigned uh, for preaching what he's preaching, but there always seems to be kind of this dance between the judge, the local judge, and the local uh, priesthood leader as it goes from city to city until it ends up with in Zarahemla itself. And then again, you still have chief judge as well as high priest. And whose responsibility is this? I, I just think it's really fascinating how the Book of Mormon nails it uh, as far as the separation of church and state and who has jurisdiction in these issues and so on. Verse 6 points in that direction. Now, verse 7, another belief. We believe that rulers, states, and governments have a right and are bound to enact laws for the protection of all citizens in the free exercise of their religious belief. But we do not believe that they have a right to injustice to deprive citizens of this privilege or proscribe them in their opinions so long as a regard and reverence are shown to the laws and such religious opinions do not justify sedition nor conspiracy. In many ways, that's a repeat of much of what we've been discussing already to this point. Again, don't infringe upon religious belief. During the polygamy, anti-polygamy legislation, it's interesting because the saints kept saying, no, it's our constitutional right. This is part of our religion. Uh, believe me, otherwise we wouldn't be doing it. Uh, we talked about that last week. But because it's free exercise, the First Amendment of the Constitution would restrict you from passing laws against our religious practice. But that was, that was where the Supreme Court found a little loophole. And they said, well, no, it, careful. We're, what we're passing legislation against is not against your religious beliefs. It's only against your so-called religious behaviors. We won't, we won't stop people. You can believe polygamy as much as you want. You just can't practice it. You can have a belief. You just can't have a behavior. Well, I, I do want to push back just enough to remind people that, well, that was an all-Protestant Supreme Court. And Protestantism, by nature, is much more about beliefs than about behaviors. Whereas, if there had been Catholics on the court at the time, for example, I wonder if it would have been different. Or at least a dissenting opinion saying, careful about distinguishing too overtly between beliefs and behaviors, because religious behaviors, again, it's like public versus private, behavior versus belief, all of that is still under the realm of religion, which is supposed to be held sacred, even by secular governments. We, we need to be careful with all of that. Verse 8, we believe that the commission of crime, so now again we've been talking about sin on the religious side, how about crime on the political side? We believe that the commission of crime should be punished according to the nature of the offense. Let the punishment fit the crime, we say that murder, treason, robbery, theft, and the breach of the general peace in all respects should be punished according to their criminality and their tendency to evil among men. That would have been really nice during the Missouri persecution. By the laws of that government in which the offense is committed, and for the public peace and tranquility, all men should step forward and use their ability in bringing offenders against good laws to punishment. So there again, that's a strictly political verse, verse 8, and it has to do with crime. Uh, against civil law. 
actually skip nine for a moment and jump ahead to 10 because then we'll see the opposite. If that's the crime side in civil government, how about the sin side within church government? Ecclesiastical rather than political now. Verse 10, we believe that all religious societies have a right to deal with their members for disorderly conduct according to the rules and regulations of such societies, provided that such dealings be for fellowship and good standing. That's as far as it can go. But we do not believe that any religious society has authority to try men on the right of property or life, or to take from them this world's goods, or to put them in jeopardy of either life or limb, or to inflict any physical punishment upon them. They can only excommunicate them from their society and withdraw from them their fellowship. So that goes back to that fellowship and good standing phrase at the beginning of 10. So you understand what, what 10 is saying? It's drawing the limits of what a religion can do to punish sinners. And it's, it's not about life, and it's not about liberty, and it's not about uh, property or anything else. Churches have no say in any of that matter. Uh, that's why it was interesting, even in consecration times, that it was, it was private ownership and that you're transferring money to, or property to the church, but they're transferring it back to you and you own it. And so we're not going to take that away from you, and, but you can't take it away from the church. It's, I mean, it's, we're all trying to stay legal here in all of this. I, I, to me, even last week when we were talking about the word destroyed in section 132, and I was, telling, I was explaining, don't take that literally in terms of some kind of corporal punishment. Now, corporal punishment or even capital punishment seems to be allowed in verse 8, according to the criminality or the tendency to evil, but that's government. That's, that's civil law. In 10, churches don't have that right. Churches don't go for capital punishment. They don't go for corporal punishment. What's the only, what's the only threat, if you want to use that word, that can be used by a church? To be disfellowshipped to be excommunicated, to have rights and privileges within the church limited in some way. So don't, again, don't take destroyed too far in your imagination. Don't take thoughts of, I mean, or interesting rumors that, that grew up in the, in the Utah period, for example, of, or even in Missouri and Nauvoo, is the Danites, it's Joseph's or Brigham's avenging angels, or this kind of trumped up things about blood atonement and they're going to kill you. So no, 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 no. Churches don't do that, okay? And the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints doesn't do that either. It hasn't. Now let's go back to verse 9, which we skipped. We do not believe it just to mingle religious influence with civil government, whereby one religious society is fostered and another prescribed in its spiritual privileges, and the individual rights of its members as citizens denied. Now that's where the church very clearly states that it supports the separation of church and state. Now again, it's mostly meant to protect the church from the state, but it's admitting here it's to protect the state from a church as well. A church that would infringe upon the rights of members of other churches. I remember as a kid learning that other than supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, which is just a made-up Disney word, that perhaps the longest word in English is anti-disestablishmentarianism. And as a kid, I just remember laughing at that word and wanting to memorize it just so I could say I knew the longest word in English. I didn't think it meant anything. And even if you read the, the definition, I probably would have been confused. But the irony was in, in divinity school, studying American religious history, anti-disestablishmentarianism actually now makes perfect sense. Well, in verse 9, it's a, a sense of anti-establishmentarianism. 
it's not anti-disestablishment, but it's anti-establishment. We don't want a specific religion established at the, at the exclusion of all others. It's ironic that as Latter-day Saints, we've sometimes been accused of wanting an established religion, namely the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and in Nauvoo, Joseph's kingdom on the Mississippi, no other churches were welcome. And in, in Salt Lake, uh, Brigham's kingdom in the, in the wilderness, uh, there were no other churches allowed either. Well, there, there's some friction between Latter-day Saints and the people of other faiths, sadly. But as far as the laws of Nauvoo, the laws of, of Utah, and even the practice of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, then and now and ever, all, all the time in between, we are anti-establishmentarians. We don't want the church established. We want there to be freedom of religion. We want there to be pluralistic views. In fact, Joseph Smith was very much that way in Nauvoo. There's a great story of a Methodist minister coming in and just saying, oh, well, you're never going to let me preach here. And Joseph's like, of course you can. And at one point, even after this Methodist gave a sermon, and he's like, oh, great, now Joseph's going to come up and just thrash me. And he said, no, I'd like to share a few other views. And he did. And the Methodist even said, I was so impressed with Joseph's approach. It didn't seem like he was trying to destroy my beliefs. He was simply trying to seek truth and an understanding. He said, I came away from Nauvoo respecting the Latter-day Saints more than when I got there. Interesting. Or when Joseph Smith ran for president in 1844 and ran largely on a platform of religious freedom because the saints' freedom was so infringed upon in Missouri. And he said, if it has been demonstrated that I have been willing to die for a Mormon, quote-unquote, I am bold to declare before heaven that I am just as ready to die in defending the rights of a Presbyterian, a Baptist, or a good man of any other denomination. For the same principle which would trample upon the rights of the Latter-day Saints would trample upon the rights of the Roman Catholics or of any other denomination who may be unpopular and too weak to defend themselves. I'm grateful he included Roman Catholics there because at the time, Protestantism reigned supreme in the United States and there was so much anti-Catholicism. And Joseph didn't just join the majority or oppose the unpopular minority in order to make friends in high places. No, freedom of religion should be protected for all. We even believe in a millennium when Christ himself reigns upon the earth that is not open only to Christians. People of all beliefs, as long as they are living according to the light they have, living terrestrial lives at least, will be there during the millennium. Interesting to consider. Then verse 11, we believe that men should appeal to the civil law for redress of all wrongs and grievances. Where personal abuse is inflicted or the rights of property or character infringed, where such laws exist as will protect the same. So there we see a repeat of what we saw in 98 and 101. That go see, I mean, the parable of the importunate widow or the parable of the unjust judge. Redress. Seek. Even section 123. Write down. Make affidavits and, and sign petitions of all the suffering the saints went through in Missouri. So we can present them to government in all their hellish hue. Remember we studied that? Well, verse 11 suggests all of that. Make redress according to civil law. But what happens if it doesn't work, as we saw in Missouri? End of verse 11. But we believe that all men are justified in defending themselves, their friends and property and the government, from the unlawful assaults and encroachments of all persons in times of exigency. 
where immediate appeal cannot be made to the laws and relief afforded. And that describes a lot of what the saints had done in Missouri to try to defend themselves. They turned cheek after cheek after cheek, but as we were taught in just war theory, Doctrine and Covenant style, the fourth instance, you are justified in defending yourselves if you choose to do so. And some Latter-day Saints chose to do so. If you, and that, so we saw civil disobedience uh, earlier. Well, what about right to defend oneself? Well, that is defended in verse 11 also. Verse 12, we then see the final verse here. We believe it just to preach the gospel to the nations of the earth and warn the righteous to save themselves from the corruption of the world. That we see in what we just studied in section 133. The word must go forth to gather out the righteous where'er they may be to cry repentance and, and plead with people to come out of Babylon. I wish in many ways that verse 12 could have ended there with a simple statement, we believe in doing missionary work. We believe in gathering Israel. Unfortunately, as the saints had been just, just been driven out of a slave state, partly due to their Yankee antipathy against the practice of slavery, these, the, the vast majority of Latter-day Saints came from New England and from Ohio, northern areas that didn't practice slavery. And now they're trying to establish Zion in Missouri, in a, in a very rabid slave state. Remember W.W. Phelps had written that article in the church newspaper in Independence explaining some of the laws in Missouri to potential black converts that would join the church? We'd love to have you, but be aware of the situation on the ground. It's pretty, it's pretty touchy here. And it was that that got the mob so up in arms. The, the thought that you would bring free blacks into the state to, to, to let our slaves know that there's a better life out there as a possibility. No, 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 no. And so when they destroyed the press and they tarred and feathered Bishop Partridge and they, I mean, dismantled the printing office of W.W. W. Phelps, so much of that was because of their racism. And so the saints are licking their wounds and wondering, how on earth are we going to establish Zion in a slave state? This is still two and a half decades before the Civil War, okay? Thus, when we read the end of verse 12, I think you're free to plug your nose while you read it, because I get a sense that the saints were plugging their nose when they wrote it. That this was a necessary evil and a painful compromise with culture that that the situation in Missouri demanded. So read the rest. But we do not believe it right to interfere with bondservants, neither preach the gospel to nor baptize them contrary to the will and wish of their masters, nor to meddle with or influence them in the least to cause them to be dissatisfied with their situations in this life, thereby jeopardizing the lives of men. Such interference we believe to be unlawful and unjust and dangerous to the peace of every government, allowing human beings to be held in servitude. Now, that last phrase is another loophole. We saw it before of like, well, honor governments if they're honoring your rights. Uh, keep the law as long as it's constitutional. Well, here, we shouldn't interfere with, with slave issues in governments that allow it. Now, that doesn't mean we support it ourselves. That doesn't mean we promote it. We wish the government would make a change. And thankfully, eventually it did, although it came at an incredible, incalculable cost. Well, to understand what the saints were up against, it puts verse 12 in a little different perspective. It makes it slightly more palatable, realizing that how on earth are we going to establish Zion in Missouri? 
if we come in with guns blazing and, and abolitionists, if, if it was a John Brown that was coming in uh, to add more blood to bleeding Kansas, to, to try to just force the issue, unfortunately, the United States was not ready for that. In fact, even American churches were not ready for that. The, the Baptists seceded and the Methodists seceded and the Presbyterians seceded long before the South seceded. The fact that the largest Protestant denomination now is called the Southern Baptist Convention. Why the Southern? Ooh, that's Civil War. There's a university called SMU. And what's the S stand for? Southern. It's Southern Methodist University. What's with Southern? Oh, that's pre-Civil War. The three biggest Protestant denominations split over the slave issue. And many scholars wonder, how was the, how was the, the country supposed to resolve the slave issue if the churches couldn't even do it. And so there were southern churches just like a southern confederacy. Well, there's no southern Latter-day Saints. There's no SLDS church. We, we stick together under prophetic guidance, but how do you navigate that in a land where racism is the norm and even affected Latter-day Saints? You can't avoid that in, in reading some of our history. I believe Joseph Smith was so far ahead of his time when it came to race relations. Uh, even, like I said, his, his platform in 1844 is going to solve some of the religious issues. It, all, it would also save the racial issues. Let's take the Louisiana Purchase and, and all that land, government land and sell it and then take the money and buy the slaves from the southern uh, owners. That way they're not out financially. And the government's not out financially because of all this Western land. But then slaves can be free and pursue their life, liberty, and happiness in the way that goes according to their conscience. That they can live according to Section 134, and everyone else can too. And nobody's out anything. Such a solution. It wasn't until like late 1850s, 60s, that there were politicians that remembered Joseph running on that. One even said... We thought Ralph Waldo Emerson was a genius for suggesting similar things like a decade later. Then why can't we credit Joseph Smith for coming up with those solutions long before the Sage of Concord did? Oh, if only we'd listened. Would have saved the nation from its own, its own heartbreak. But in the meantime, what do we do in Missouri? We're not a theocracy. We're not even a majority yet, and that was something the Missourians were scared to death of and therefore drive them out. But what do we do? How do we ameliorate the situation of the slaves? Well, if I can't preach liberty to the captives, literally, could I preach kindness to those who are holding them captive? Actually, let me back up and just put this in perspective. This section, 134 verse 12, says we're not going to interfere with slave issues in places where it's allowed. It's not our preference, but we will honor and obey and sustain the law of the land, even if we plug our nose while we're doing it. We'll honor position and not, not necessarily person. We'll honor laws until we can legally change them. But if you think this is the church's preference, then you've got to go back to section 101, which was revealed before this was written, like a year and a half earlier, and it says this, Therefore, it is not right that any man should be in bondage one to another. So there's the Lord's law on slavery. It's not right. 
Or how about this statement from Joseph Smith, written in a letter the same year that this was, was written by, by Oliver Cowdery. He said, we believe in preaching the doctrine of repentance in all the world, both to old and young, rich and poor, bond and free. That's what we believe. Well, uh, this, this one is, ah, but how do we do that? Our preference, our principle, our belief is that we should be, there should be no holds barred on crying repentance. That's the first part of verse 12, right? Without any kind of infringement on it in the second part of verse 12. The question just remains, how do we do that in slave states? Where preaching to the, the slaves themselves would, would anger the, their owners so much. They didn't, owners didn't even want their, their slaves to read because if they read the Bible uh, and saw, I mean, they couldn't stop the Negro spirituals from singing of deliverance and the exodus from, from an American Egypt. Oh, but don't read the Bible with all its talk of doing unto others as you would have others do unto you. Well, Joseph wanted to preach everywhere, but how do we do it in the South? You know, even in Ohio, northern state, when the Kirtland Temple was dedicated, they wrote some rules for the temple. Now, it's not like the temple today where you have to have a recommend and show. It was, it was more of a meeting place, okay? After the dedication and its Pentecostal outpouring, the Kirtland Temple was the main meeting place for the church. But the rules for the temple provided for the admission of, quote, old or young, rich or poor, male or female, bond or free, black or white, believer or unbeliever. Everyone's welcome into the Kirtland Temple. I mean, the history of race within the church is very complicated, yeah, messy at times. And we'll talk more about it when we get to the second official declaration in a couple of weeks. But Joseph Smith was so far ahead of his time black converts in Kirtland, uh, giving uh, the priesthood to black men in Nauvoo. Uh, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing what Joseph Smith was trying to, the Zion he was trying to build. So you better believe he was plugging his nose when he couldn't establish the kind of Zion he wanted in Missouri for all kinds of reasons. Perhaps a better analogy or a parallel perhaps I could give is the Methodist church because the Methodists when they came to America were abolitionists as well. They didn't want slavery. They didn't believe in it. But then they're spreading. It was the, one of the fastest growing churches in America, even during Joseph Smith's time. And what do we do in the South? Because if we come in, like I said, with guns blazing, saying you've got to free your slaves, there's no Southern slave owner that's going to allow that to happen. Francis Asbury was the main Methodist leader in America at the time, and he said this, My mind is much pained. Oh, to be dependent on slaveholders is in part to be a slave. And I was freeborn. In other words, I feel enslaved by their, by their slavery. I can, I'm not free to go in and preach to their, to their slaves or to themselves because they just won't let me. He said, we are defrauded of great numbers by the pains that are taken to keep the blacks from us. Their masters are afraid of the influence of our principles. And then this thought, would not an amelioration in the condition and treatment of slaves have produced more practical good to the poor Africans than any attempt at their emancipation? That's the struggle. Is it emancipation or amelioration? And if emancipation is not an option, then what's the best way to help them within their circumstances? And if it's not freeing them, is it perhaps freeing their masters from hatred? Even if we can't free them from, from their racism? Is there anything we can do to soften their hearts so that they're softened towards their slaves? 
maybe line upon line, maybe this a, a gradual approach to change things. Asbury went on, the state of society unhappily does not admit of this. We can't just free them. Besides, the blacks are deprived of the means of instruction. They're not even given chances to learn. So, Asbury asks, who will take the pains to lead them into the ways of salvation and watch over them that they may not stray? But the Methodists? Well, now their masters will not let them come to hear us. So, again, he's just torn. What, what are we supposed to do? One of the great missionary churches of its day was, were the Methodists. But what are we going to do in the South? The Latter-day Saints were asking similar questions. So another Methodist leader, Thomas Koch, said, We thought it prudent to suspend the minute concerning slavery. So like these meeting minutes, as they're trying to figure out what do we do with it. On account of the great opposition that has been given it, our work being in too infantile a state to push things to extremity. I think that's a very helpful insight into race relations and religious race relations at the time. Our, our church is too small. It's in a, its infantile state. We can't make the kinds of bold changes to, to politics and social structures in America that we would want. But as we grow, I hope we can make a bigger difference. I think the same could be said of the Latter-day Saints. There was an article in The Messenger and Advocate, a church's newspaper in Kirtland in 1836, that said this, Our strong feeling for liberty and prejudice against the South in consequences of, ed of education. It's like the Missourians, they didn't like us and we didn't like them either. Yeah, we're all Yankees, okay? In consequence of education, at a former period, would have urged us, perhaps, to pursue another course. In other words, to go all in and guns blazing and we're going to emancipate the slaves and, and push for abolition here in Missouri. It's our Zion. Get out. But, it goes on, after examining this matter seriously and looking at its principles from the scriptures as well as being somewhat prepared to judge from an actual experience in the South. So we, knew what we're, we know what we're up against. We again repeat that the condition of the slave cannot be bettered other than by converting the master to the faith of the gospel. That's the only hope we have. That's the first step and perhaps only step we can take for now. Don't interfere, as we saw in section 134. Just preach to their masters and hope that leads to a change of heart. That was the saint's approach. In some ways, it was the only one they were left with. But it's not what God wanted. It's not what the prophet wanted. Sometimes we just are confined by cultural constraints, political compromises. It's hard. In fact, two last things from Joseph Smith. He said, The Declaration of Independence holds these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So there Joseph knows his declaration. Okay? We, see, we saw it in section 134. But, he continues, at the same time, some two or three millions of people are held as slaves for life because the spirit in them is covered with a darker skin. I love the way he put that. He's trying to reconcile how, how can there be slavery in the land of the free and the home of the brave? How and, and all kinds of people, blacks included, during the Revolutionary War were like, what hypocrisy? You're crying that you're, you're being enslaved to, to the British when you're keeping slaves yourselves? Where's the, where's the integrity, the justice, the fairness in any of that? Well, Joseph's seen that. How can we hold people in bondage 
in, in a land that promises freedom. But then also how he phrased it, spirits who happen to be covered with a darker skin. That's so interesting that Joseph would see beyond skin deep. That within each of us, whatever color, whatever shade, whatever hue we might be, is a spirit, son, or daughter of heavenly parents. That's, that's who we really are. And Joseph wanted to get to that core of the issue. That's how Joseph felt about it. He knew and taught that slaves had souls and spirits. He believed firmly that the only reason that they were in their condition is because they were not given any opportunity to change it. He said, put them in the same position as whites. Give them freedom. Give them opportunity. Give them education. And they will be no different. He held out that hope, which history has proven to be true. What was he up against at the time? These kinds of painful compromises. So at one point he also said this, it should be the duty of an elder when he enters into a house to salute the master of that house. And if he gains his consent, then he may preach to all that are in the house. That's the ultimate goal. But if he gain not his consent, let him not go unto his slaves or servants, but let the responsibility be upon the head of the master of that house and the consequences thereof. And the guilt of that house is no longer upon his skirts. There's the painful compromise. But Joseph acknowledges guilt and consequences. It's not going to be on us. You wouldn't let us. And so the consequences will be upon you. But the hope is that God will soften the heart of the master. So that the gospel can be preached to his whole household. Slaves, servants included. In hopes that everything can change. Joseph's goal through all of this was Zion, one heart, one mind, righteousness, no poor, no difference, bond or free, black or white, we're all children of God. I actually remember one time on my mission, it wasn't a slave issue, obviously, it wasn't a racial issue, but it was a master sort of issue because there was a, a family that was being taught by a set of other missionaries. The whole family, mother and children at least, seemed like they wanted to join the church, but the dad was dead set against it. And I remember I was going on a, an exchange with this set of elders. It was going to be a, a threesome for the day. And I was there to kind of help train and, and work with some things and help them out. And they had an appointment with this family. Now, as we were driving there, uh, they told us, they, they told me the story. And they said, we just... They, <laughs> They want to join the church, but they're scared of what their dad's going to say about it, or their husband. And, and he just won't listen to us. He won't give us the time of day. He doesn't want to have anything to do with it. Well, we're teaching a discussion today, and we really want to extend the baptismal invitation. But we're scared. <laughs> Will you do it? And I was like, what? And they, they set it up. So I'll teach this principle, then we'll teach that, and then you teach that one. And I was like, oh, it happens. Okay, convenient of you. Uh, let the stranger come in on a one-day, uh, one-hit wonder and extend a baptismal invitation because you're a little nervous about doing it yourselves. Uh, I, I understand. I see where you're coming from. Well, we'll see how this plays out. We'll just trust in God. So we went and I met the wife and met the kids and they were so excited to have us there. And I tried to meet the dad. He was there and he didn't want to like, can I just shake your hand? And get, you know, it's so good to meet you. Thank you for your kindness in allowing your wife and children to meet with the missionaries. Uh, I, hope, I hope that it's been a blessing to them, and through them, I hope it's a blessing to you. In fact, we wouldn't want to do anything without your, your understanding. We wouldn't want to do anything without your participation, to be honest. Our church is so focused on families. 
We'd love for your whole family to understand the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even if you're not interested, would you mind just sitting in on our conversation to know what we're, what we're explaining to your wife and children? Again, this was in a, in a culture at the time that was patriarchal and, and trying to respect the, the father in the home. There needs to be equal partners, as we learn in the, in the proclamation, but we're trying to navigate all that. And I don't know if it was just the way that we said it or the Lord starting to soften his heart. He said, okay, I'll, I'll sit in. Kind of a supervisory role, perhaps. Well, anyway, we start teaching. And it's going around and the missionaries are teaching and it comes to my turn and I'm trying to teach. And, and I, the Spirit was there and I wanted to extend the, the baptismal invitation. Because you could just see in the wife and the children this desire, this love of the Book of Mormon, the loves of the truth, love of the truths they were learning, and and that, ah, I want to move forward. But I also knew that in this culture, I need to start with the Father. And I was I was feeling the missionary's fear, feeling a little bit of my own, and then pushing it out with faith. I just remember it got to a point where the Spirit was so strong, I turned to the Father and extended an invitation to be baptized as he came to know the truth of these things. And it was like you could cut the tension in the room with a knife as the missionaries were holding their breath and the wife and kids are holding their breath. And it was the most amazing thing to see the Spirit work upon the heart of this good man. And as he said, to everyone's surprise, yes, if this was really true, the things we're talking about, I would want to join this church. I would want this to be a part of my life. I would want my family to follow in this path. Yes. And then me trying to just keep a poker face instead of like shock and awe, like, what, really? I just then turned calmly to the wife and extended the same invitation to her, which beaming, she joyfully said, yes. And then turning to the children that were of age, will you be baptized as well? And yes, yes, all the way down. And I just remember driving away with the missionaries as they're just kind of like, how did that happen? It's like, how did you do that? And me, I'm like, I didn't do anything. But to see the Lord soften the heart of a quote-unquote master and allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to affect his whole home. In some ways, that's what the saints were hoping for. And not just in slave states, but in a world enslaved to Babylon. With this, we go back to section 133. Go ye out of Babylon. Be clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. Come unto Christ and build Zion and prepare the earth for the second coming of her king. I testify of that glorious day that is somewhere on the horizon. I pray that you and I can prepare ourselves and prepare others and then prepare the way of the Lord. He said he would come quickly. Even so, come, Lord Jesus.